Say something, Jesse. Something. Cool. So then <clears throat> there's letters on the front of your microphone. <clears throat> and just have those somewhat facing towards wherever you're going to be talking. And you could move them around. The, the front being words. where the words are? Yeah, those words. Or yeah, so you just want that facing towards you. All right. So this is, ah, fuck, I think episode eight of Desert Beach Podcast. Uh, <clears throat> I got two people here today. Uh, first person is Jesse Black. Hi there. <clears throat> Second one is Noah. Noah, what's your last name? Noah Munt. Noah Munt. So... <clears throat> Kind of today, uh, both these guys that we are working or that are on the podcast today, both have have a lot of history in the water and wastewater industry. Um, Jesse being more on the operations side, Noah having my understanding is you have an engineering background, correct? Correct. Yes. Okay. So, what do you currently do, Noah? So I work in uh, consulting, and so I do a lot of work with efficiency and operational efficiencies related to primarily energy and connectivity with water. So we work with industrial customers, municipal customers, and large commercial. Okay. What does that mean? It means we do efficiency audits. So if you're, you know, you look at energy as an input to your system in a process management vantage point, and you say, how much of this am I using and is there ways that i could use it more efficiently so that can range from doing you know audits forecasting and other types of operational changes but the operational changes can also include other inputs you know in a treatment setting that can be any types of chemical cost manpower costs or construction costs okay and so then utilizing that looking at different options of microgrid adaptability and other things for the way that you use energy um, all, all come into play. So where, how'd you get into doing what you're doing now? Because you, you own your own business doing this now. Correct. Right? Yeah. Well, technically we are a woman-owned business. My wife is my boss. So um, I got into this. So I started as an environmental engineer and I'm a civil PE. So it was in doing, started out doing some roadway work as a, uh, intern uh then it led me into doing some what would i it was a postal service project called service visibility and in doing that we went around in the early 2000s and the united states postal service was at that time slightly behind the curve in their ability to track mail because they would just write things down and so i did a about two years where we went around and put barcoding on all of their mail transport equipment and upgraded that in order for them to be able to systematically just scan versus handwriting handing it off and from a manpower and so that sort of bridged me into looking at more efficiencies and then i did some design work and permitting between commercial, residential, land development, and water and wastewater distribution and treatment in Florida. And what brought me to the energy side was looking at the massive amounts of wastefulness and focus on first costs of any types of large projects where you would spec out certain equipment, then that equipment would get value engineered down to the absolute basic essentials and then those essentials would have long-range impacts on your financial ability to operate meaning you would it would cost you exceptionally more in the long run because you saved a little bit up front and 
in doing that, then, the opportunity to start looking at energy as an input and running a program as a third-party implementer for APS here in Arizona came about in 2010. And so I came out and helped to establish that. And, you know, we would pay rebates to individuals to upgrade their equipment. And as an aside, the reason that utilities do that is their basic business premise is based on an electric utility is how many customers do I have? And then you have your peak loading and if your peak loading is too high, you need to build more power plants. But if you get more customers that use less, you have a base cost and you essentially have a larger profitability. Okay. That's a very technical... It's a long way to put that he makes plants that have lights that automatically shut off. <laughs> so when you walk out of the room, in a nutshell, the fact the light turns off is because of someone like him. It's my okay. understanding of what he does. Yeah, that's... That that's one aspect that does it, but it, but it does carry you know carry across the the spectrum of exactly what it is. It's using less to do the same thing. Okay, so that and uh, I mean that just highlights. Obviously, you have a sustainability background because that's. I mean, ideally, in a nutshell, that's that's what you're doing. It's this, you know, the availability of electricity and how you can bring that cost down and and you know ultimately at the end of the day bringing consumer costs down. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And sustainability. And, you know, we, we have, oh, I'm hammering it. I'll step back. The, we, we also call it resiliency, whether you're looking at working on, you know, federal projects within the military, there's a large drive towards resiliency. And in 2018, we passed the Water Infrastructure Act that focuses on resiliency, but it's also just simply sustainability, but it gets put forth in a different light because the resiliency has that safety factor involved yeah. in it so how'd you get into this like what what drove you to get like is uh, originally what drove you towards the engineering background and then how'd you go towards the well i you know i could go all the way back to you know when i was 14 years old and i started pouring concrete and i actually have a very fun story about you know we the company i worked for the owners also worked at the level five maximum security prison in Green Bay. And so they would hire, they would hire a lot of, I don't know if convicts is the correct I'm term. Not, we're not very PC. We're yeah, debilitated so. in <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So these, and so we would, you know, as a teenager, I'm out there, you know, doing construction and running crews. And, and so it was a, a very fun experience. And so I always was a math and science oriented individual. So engineering was a, a way to go. And the environmental side was, I don't, I don't know, you know, my parents are sort of hippie-esque in the sense we always had a garden. We would do canning, um, plant trees. Smoke a bunch know, of dope. Yeah, lots, yeah. Lots yeah. of dope. Only, when it, only once it became legal and medical, of course, yes. as a disclaimer, but yes. <laughs> uh, and so that was always part of just the overall theme of my life, I guess. And so it, the environmental engineering was sort of a fun way, but I've always been driven by that other side of it being the, of course, monetary capital side that you can have the most altruistic thoughts in the world but unless somebody is functionally going to pay for it or you can translate into their language how this makes financial and fiscal sense you're going to end up at a dead end yeah. and so hence sort of opening up the array into what i do now all right well let's jump over to jesse real quick on this i can't follow that in the least bit my that's why not I that technical in my background <laughs> Uh, don't yeah. sell yourself short, Jesse. 
Like I didn't bury bodies in concrete at fourteen <laughs> because somebody that's was a snitch in prison. Okay, I mean that's that's what I got from that story right there. <laughs> yeah. So Jesse, what do you do currently? So currently, I, I guess at a bare minimum, I'm an outside sales for uh, manufacturers, large manufacturers that cover regional territory. In what industry? In the water and wastewater industry. So. How'd you what what did you do previously? What I you have a ton of experience in the water and wastewater industry. What what is that experience? What would your resume look like? So basically to start at the the beginning there, um I started as a laborer at a wastewater plant. It was a very, very basic treatment system. It was called a lagoon system. Basically water came in one side, went out the other, slightly treated, a little bit better than the way it came in. It was really rudimentary at the time. Um, I came in and it was like 14 bucks an hour. I mean, bare minimum, minimum wage. Uh, it's just, uh, my only job was to make sure that I kept weeds pulled around the lagoon. They didn't overgrow because they didn't want mosquitoes around it. Did that and I, I hand pulled a couple of pieces of aeration equipment that were floating on the surface twice a day. That was my whole job. Uh, from there, that system was then upgraded to what's now called an advanced treatment system. So you went from the bare minimum to one of the more technical advanced treatment plants uh, of its time and over the next course of the next year of putting that system online we come to find out that the existing operators that had always been there that are used to the very rudimentary system could not quite comprehend the more technical side of the advanced treatment system where I could pick it up being a younger younger person um, so I worked my way up there to a lead position to run that facility um, but it was in a small rural town where I, you could max out real easy at a job. And, you know, you could ride your years out there if you wanted to. It's not really what I wanted to do. Um, I was kind of a big fish in a small pond up there. I was looking more for, we were talking, we were, me and my wife at the time, we were talking about having uh, another kid. Do we really want to raise a kid up in that atmosphere up there in a small town, rural area, which wasn't the nice pine tree country living, more of the meth-infested small town is more where i'm talking about, talking about the white mountains <laughs> i'm just saying all right we don't have to pinpoint a place here and not the good meth like the blue yeah. stuff on breaking Bad. yeah right yeah it wasn't blue it was like clear and <laughs> along with your teeth by the time you're done but uh no so we talked about you know where do we want to live where do we want to move to the phoenix area looked a little bit better so i i took a jump moved down to the phoenix area took a role as an operations manager for a contract operations firm where I got a little bit more of a taste of running bigger budgets, running a larger facility, dealing with clients. Uh, it was a contract office. We were contracted out by cities to run their facilities for them because they just didn't want the headache. Um, did that for, well, four or five years. For that company, at the time, that city decided to pull their contracts back in-house. They did want the headaches. They wanted to run it themselves. Um, so I took a position with a large private utility after that as one of their operations supervisors at a very large facility. Uh, finished my career out as an operator doing that. Um, uh, towards the end of my career doing it as an operator, I was looking more towards the sales side, uh, knowing a lot of the different manufacturers reps in the areas, uh, having a lot of conversations with them, especially the, who we work for, who I work for now. Became good friends with them. Asked them kind of, what do you do for a living? I was looking into the sales position and they basically told me they just drink beer and play golf and sell things right shocker right yeah <laughs> yeah come to find out that is not what they do <laughs> but that's how they got me to come over to work for them so now i'm on all that equipment i used to use at the plant to maintain at the plants operate at the plants i now sell back to people at the plants so that's do you cool. like the the 
dark sail side more? I do like the dark sail size more. I do like the freedom of it. I don't have to be up at 5 in the morning unless I schedule something that I have to be there. I'm not at a plant bunch on a clock anymore, looking at a wall because there's nothing to do sometimes. <clears throat> I do like the freedom of the, the sales position. All right. if, I'm, if, I'm, if I've left my house, I'm actually doing something. Yeah. And one of, one of the things that, you know, you guys, and I find it, you know, as I talk to more and more people in the water industry and, and really a lot of people that I talk to on this is it's uh, a lot of times you kind of stumble into the water side of things. Like Yeah, I mean, that's a true statement. I mean, I, I didn't know anything about the water wastewater world. My mom actually got involved with it because she was a county clerk is how she started out as. And then she learned about the utility side, got promoted up from county clerk to running the utility and then told me about it. Hey, you should probably look into being an operator. Like, it's a really good job. So, yeah. yeah. I knew nothing about it before that. Well, that's similar. I mean, that's similar story to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, dad, growing up, dad was in the water industry. And then by the time I grow up, it's, wow, this he's doing okay. I may as well stumble into that. And right. Now I'm a dirty sales guy. Yeah, I was actually, ironically, nearly the same. My father is a civil engineer as well and did... Uh, project management for you know roads bridges but then wastewater treatment um infrastructure you know so all of the water mains and sewer mains which and in reality when i first was doing my internship i actually got a chance to work with my father which if you can imagine another one of me just older and louder um (laughs) it would be uh, an interesting job site for that summer (laughs) i could only imagine I don't ever want to be on that job site. <laughs> well, as my father would say at the kickoff meetings, I'm a really nice guy, and we're going to get along really well so long as everyone just does their job. And then he would hold up the plans and the specs and say, I don't want you to do anything that you didn't say you're going to do right here. And invariably, nobody would actually do their job, and then he'd yell and have to leave meetings to go take walks because he needed to get Right, so he didn't throw chairs across the room. You know, I feel like any time you have to point out and say, I'm going to be a nice guy, usually there's some backstory to that. Being the operator in the meetings with the engineers, I've also had to leave meetings and take walks. (laughs) (laughs) Based off of what I saw in those plans and specs. Yeah, yeah. And then the change orders that continuously flood in when it's definitely no need for change but you know that's uh, revenue enhancement one of the things that i saw uh at when we were at the ace conference that kind of merges both worlds is they had that augmented reality headset yeah that was a neat uh, and essentially neat they had uh you put on this headset and their the demo they had there was uh essentially working on a water jet for uh, manufacturing metal manufacturing whatnot but they were talking about how they would implement you know autocad plans for a brand new plant and the operator could walk around and actually you know fake but grab the valves and move them you know if you have a valve that's 20 feet in the air that you have to operate on a regular basis you know you can grab it move it down to where it'd be comfortable if it contradicted a, you know a line that's already there would turn red wouldn't let them drop it and then it, they could move it and adjust it till it was green and you know, it's one of those things that, you know, as people, you know, I feel like as more people realize what this industry is, you know, there's there's so many avenues. And we were talking with a kid last night at Westmec that, I mean, I don't think he had any idea what he was walking into, but realized that you're working with backhoes, you're working with, you know, pumps, you have the technology side, the SCADA side. I mean, even as technical as the engineering side, you know, energy management, stuff like that. It, there's so many different factors that go into getting water 
to and from your house that, you know, people just don't realize what all of it takes. Yeah, I think he, that kid last night, I was at the West Mech event with you. I think his biggest eye-opener was the fact that the industry is so diverse. You can mm-hmm. go any number of different routes as far as what your interest is. Uh, water utility, wastewater utility is going to give you an avenue to explore that. Uh, yeah. The sad thing about our industry is that technology you were just talking about with the, the VR world putting on the headset, that's been around for probably 10, 15 years in the oil and gas industry. And it's still a new technology to us in the water wastewater side. Like I heard about this technology probably 10 years ago from an engineering firm that, but they were using it in the, like I said, oil and gas industry. And I thought it would take off a lot quicker than it has, but right. it is really interesting. I was with them in ACE, we were putting it on. Yeah, you can, as an operator, walk around your entire plant they're designing and go, hey, wait a minute, we've got a, a CPEX positive displacement, displacement pump sitting in a pit right now. What the engineer doesn't know is that to take that pump apart, I need six feet of clearance behind it because it has what's called a stator that comes out of the center of it and pulls out. And the engineer is about to design this plant and pour an entire concrete basin with no clearance behind it because they think it opens up at the top. So something like that is really key in those, those types of new virtual reality programs. So. Now, what do you think the biggest reason for, I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but why is this brand new, the water industry and been around in oil and gas for the last 10 years? Money driven, I would yeah. think. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> oil and gas is more profitable. Yeah, well, you know, and, and, and if we take a, what we're talking about here as well is uh, is similar to what's called Industry 4.0. So in the manufacturing world, you know, you'll have what's called a digital twin. And so you create, in essence, for a factory, if you were going to spec out building another factory, you're making widgets, you spec out this whole digital factory where you go from cradle to grave and every piece of equipment you would put in, every block you're going to lay all of the needs, you can look through the whole supply chain of how your business works, and you make all of these calculations before you put forth any type of a capital investment. Now, I think that part of the reason that that's the net gains you can get from a more efficient manufacturing on a product side is much more elaborate and exciting than more efficiently delivering water. Now, yeah. there are certain privatized organizations that do well and they do make profits, but in many ta- cases you do have a lot of regulations and you also have commissions that would relegate how much profitability you have so you have what would be considered a governor on Mm -hmm. the business line and so in some cases i think that the mundane nature of water treatment and delivery um it, it doesn't have any flash to oh look we did this exceptionally better because it's even if you save 20% of your costs, it sounds really good and it looks good, but it wouldn't be as pretty as putting a few solar panels on the parking lot next to an art sculpture that a local student did. You know, so you run into a lot of that in the water industry where it doesn't have that pizzazz or flash. And also just that the, you know, for younger people getting into it, what they don't realize is the, I guess, I don't know if bullshittery is the best word of thinking how big their job's going to be. Even as an engineer, you think, oh, wow. I remember when I graduated, I'd go to the, uh, uh, at, they had the counselors at school, and we had a 99% rate of placement from environmental engineering out of Michigan Tech, which was one of the top programs in the country in the late 90s when I was there. And I, I remember them calling me six months after I graduated and asking me if I was working. And I said, well, yeah, I'm working, but I'm working on roadway projects right now and i'm waiting to 
open up into more at the time i was thinking major water quality or air quality control issues um and they said well that's okay we just need to know if you're employed and i went further to clarify that so you're saying if i was working at mcdonald's right now that that counts as a placement and i'm not saying that this is specific to that college or anything else but the the mundane nature of what your job is going to look like in those first few years if you're an exceptional genius student maybe you are going to go directly into something that is far more exciting but mm. the other milling about of those of us in the middle pack of everything you end up going in and getting churned through a business cycle where even as an engineer you're really just an errand boy and a data entry person for a number of years and you work a long time long hours and the it's just not nearly as exciting as you get made to believe and i think that the one thing that the water industry doesn't do is spend any time trying to portend that moniker of this is going to be a very exciting it's nope this is what you're doing and here's what it is and that that causes some consternation or some standoffishness to going into just simply because oh wait there's these shiny objects over here and i think that's also why over time when you the illusion gets illuminated and you realize and that's why you see people moving into the water industry because it is not any less exciting than the other industries that just cuts through a lot of the fluff factor yeah kind of straight to the point mm -hmm. and i mean you yeah. still have <clears throat> you still have you know the big machinery and stuff like that it's just different i mean i think it'd be kind of cool to deal with a you know eight foot pipe I mean, drawing it up and designing it might not be the most fun. I know the operations side of working on it is definitely intriguing to me. Yeah, one of my favorite jobs as an operator is, is one of the more base ones, which is running a belt filter press. I loved it, man. I would spend, I'd take an entire day down there maintaining that press, optimizing it to get the the driest end product you could out of there, the most efficient you could. And even as a supervisor and manager, I would still take time where... If the rest of my crew was busy or something, hey, I'll go run down. I'll go down there and spend the day running the belt press. So it's a big piece of machinery. I mean, we're talking the size of a building. Yeah. These belt filter presses are, and, and it just controlling it and making it as efficient as possible is always one of my favorite jobs as an operator. Well, that's one of the things that, you know, kind of my main topic that I try to push on these is, you know, I consider water industry a trade. Yeah. Uh, engineering specifically isn't a trade, but when you get into you know specific engineering there you know you're, you're getting to find something that you really like and and find something that you're passionate about um and you know uh, same thing i feel like when you're dealing with those specific industries you know even prior to when i was working in water working in when i was doing you know industrial engineering i get to deal with you know 300,000 square foot warehouses where there's literally fans called big ass fans that look like helicopter blades that'll blow you off the ground um get play with stuff like that and it's you know it's one of those things that when you're in high school and, and even early college nobody says like hey you know you can go do these things right now while you're in college i mean you might have to change your your school schedule around a little bit to make it fit or maybe take some online classes but you can go work on these things you can play around with these things there's always journeymanships and whatnot to get that hands-on experience and one of the things that that i 
you know, my, I have a little brother that he's 21 years old. I have 16 or yeah, 16 year old and 21 year old. And I talk to him all the time because my 16 year old brother is, you know, strict on school. I need to get school done. He's a super smart kid. Could do anything he wants to school wise. But he's he's like I, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to you know go engineering or you know something along that route and make a hundred thousand dollars the day I graduate from school and just stumble into it. <laughs> and then I have my other brother who's I'm going to make a hundred thousand dollars without going to school and you know he doesn't he's he's which you can do, but he's not you know putting in those steps to you know build that experience to do so. And one of the things that I I mean that I preach about all the time is you know. When you graduate, when you when you apply for a job, a, a qualified job, they say they want a four-year degree and four years of job experience. Well, how do you get that unless you're 35 years old? Right. You know, it, it's it's working those working while you're going to school nights, stuff like that, which isn't glamorous. You don't get to go to all the parties, but I mean, I was, you know, one of the people that I worked. I didn't start. I started school six months ago. But I've worked since I was 16 in maintenance and engineering and worked through water. And, you know, now I'm in sales, which is kind of totally offsprung of that. But it's one of those things that, you know, there's so many different paths to get where you want to go. It's just finding what you want to do, whether, you know, you find it through working or you have a passion of it or thought of a passion prior to. It's just finding that path, find out what you want to do and then figure out what it takes to get to that point. And I, yeah, and and I, and I think to to that same point, you also need to set your short term goals and your long term goals, and and understand that they change. I mean, I exactly to your point of coming out of engineering school and expecting a hundred thousand dollar job. I I still remember applying for jobs <clears throat> and thinking that somehow magically with my diploma that people were literally going to be calling me They're like, "Come on, bro, look at this. You got this engineering degree. This is amazing." And unfortunately, that's not the case. You still end up being a beggar, no matter. I mean, I, th- I'm sure there are people. Like I said, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't the most studious individual during college. I had a lot of um, extracurricular activities. You, well, you went to. You were in Michigan. I've heard of uh, yeah. Michigan. Yeah, it's it's up it's up in the UP there, eh? And so you know, there's nothing between us in Canada but Lake Superior. And Aren't you the the most most bars per capita? Of any place in the U.S., yeah, it's because there's like yeah. there's like four inhabitants and eighteen bars. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but that I think Milwaukee, Wisconsin's also a strong contender for that because you can't you can't throw a stone without hitting two pubs, and that's skipping off one to the next. Yeah, right, right, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I I took the hard road too. I I'm actually technically a high school dropout. I actually didn't graduate or walk with my class. I didn't. I got a GED when I was nineteen. Because I thought I was going to go be a sales guy. I was going to sell cell phones at the time. Then it was cars. And I, I, I did very well at that. But it wasn't a sustainable career. Not, not against any car salesman friends I have. I do have a few of them. But uh, they work 19 hours a day, okay? Yeah. But uh, So I took the hard road. Went back to the labor route. Became the operator. Became the leader. And then went back to school. So I did the online program at a local uh, university. And it took me about six years to get my master's degree, but it was a lot of weekends in front of the TV when I had my brother's over and some buddies, and they're watching football, and I'm sitting there on my laptop, you know, writing a business ethics paper or something like that, where I would spend many, many Sundays doing that for Christian worldview. Yeah, yeah, a Christian worldview class. class. Right yeah, are you in that one right now? Yep. Oh, I pissed off so many teachers in that class. You're, it's really easy to poke buttons. I had somebody posted a, 
it, it, they give us like it was actually this was the previous class it was like f- my first philosophy class and they posted it's like you know 18 different subjects and you have to write a persuasive essay mm-hmm. on each one of these subjects and there was like abortion there was marijuana there was you know prison reform and i was sitting there going through it when they first posted them so the first week you chose your topic second week you you wrote out your thesis statement and so and they're posting it publicly on the discussion boards and so somebody the easy one is uh, there's no easy one but you know abortion should be legal abortion should be illegal right under it so there was it made it really easy to participate in discussions on that because there's an argument going on. All you got to do is get one word in on it and, and you get the, the discussion points. But, yeah, that's uh, college classes are fun. I'm trying to look mine up right now. I still have my college files here, too. I wrote <laughs> my persuasion paper on it. The one that stands out the most to me is, I don't remember, it was, a, it was a conflict paper, persuasion paper I had to write. I think it might have been even a sociology class I was in where the topic was on... Um, like Indians up in Alaska, you know, Eskimos and whatnot, and the Inuit, the Inuit. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, <laughs> we're PC. Come on, yeah. Jesse. All right, the people that live in igloos up in Alaska, and how it was, at, at the bare minimum it was how did the white man destroy their culture? Is what the teacher wanted us to write. Brought on. smallpox. Yeah, it was more about you know just we shoved them on these lands, and now they're failures, this and that. But I did the adverse, and I put down and wrote an entire paper on how socialism, the fact that we now give them a whole bunch of money. Because we took their land and basically made an entire culture that just lives off government funding has turned them all into alcoholics and and how that whole type of mentality can lead to that. And I turned in that paper and the teacher did not appreciate that. Cause what was your grade on it though? I still, I, she tried to fail me to begin with and then I pointed out that even though I didn't agree with her topic and wrote on my own... I still met the matrix. You hit the rubric. I the hit rubric. the rubric. Yeah. yeah, nailed it. So I ended up getting an A on the paper, but that teacher was not happy with me. <laughs> Too bad the papers aren't posted publicly with everybody. Right. So I would love to read some of those. I think I wrote an entire paper because one day I was I was behind and of course you know procrastinating and I did an entire essay on how people are different at Walmart versus how they are at Target. <laughs> <laughs> White trash? Yeah, no, it wasn't so much that. It was just the mentality of people that uh, at Target, you see most people push the carts back to their stalls or whatever, the, the cart things where you're supposed to put them at, and at Walmart, they don't. And it's the same people. I wasn't saying it was a class, it wasn't a class change here. It was literally the same people I would see in, in, in our small town here that at Target, they would push them back. At Walmart, they don't. I did an entire paper that way. <laughs> Well, it's, yeah, it's like if you go to a friend's house and the house is a dump, you don't worry about putting your feet on his table. Obviously, you can put his, your feet on his table, yeah. but if you go to a really nice, everything is clean, they're like, take your shoes off. You don't just put your feet up. You know, that would be awkward. No, so you have to ask and you know, even ask politely. Yeah. Like, is it okay? <laughs> May I? I? I have some varicose veins I need to drain, please. Yeah. <laughs> I have to go from feet on a table to a yeah. medical procedure. Well, he says, I'm getting some pressure. I need to have my <laughs> compression sock up here. So uh, one of the things I, I you know, kind of spiked my interest. I Prior to, what, we're 30 minutes in right now. Prior to 40 minutes ago, I never met Noah here. Um, but he definitely knew of me. I'm pretty important, so. I definitely knew <laughs> he of He knew all the bad stories <laughs> yeah. from me is what he heard. Which we're gonna get into those too, because I want to hear oh, some. Oh, there dirt. are many. I heard you guys gotten in a lot of trouble. Have gotten in a lot of trouble. 
closely got trouble. Into trouble. No, but stories we have. Well, I, you know that a great conglomeration of rock artists called the Traveling Wilburys once had a song, and they said, "In Jersey, anything's legal as long as you don't get caught." So. <laughs> Fair. Uh, but one of the things that, that you know kind of brought all this up was the fact that you're starting to, trying to start a podcast or starting a podcast, and what is that podcast going to be on? Oh yeah, great. Yeah, so let's talk about that. We, you know, my wife had had uh, thyroid cancer about now, almost coming up on a year and a half ago. We we had it removed, and we've been going through that. And I have another very good friend of mine, Shannon, who had an open heart surgery. Um, and is, you know, my age, 39, and well, actually he's 40 now. And my wife is also 40. I still am not, but, you, you know. You had to point that one. Yeah, he, but he's close <laughs> Very soon, though. Um, <laughs> and, and, and my lifestyle pushes me into the 60s. But anyway, we, you know, we started this in the sense of it's called gut checked. And the theory is it's get checked before you get gut checked. And it's a focus on support and education and awareness for preventative illnesses that, many times don't get the attention they should, you know, and that deals with things such as the cancer, you know, in, in, in men, that colon cancer, heart health, you know, maybe even diabetes, you know, all these things are tied to diet. There's, there's a lot of emphasis on that, on the whole health, you know, insurance companies are pushing that stuff out a lot, but there's not as much in the, in the marketing fashion of how do you actually tell people in a very succinct manner, similar to, you know, the way Jesse describes business, you know, how he went in and just would do whatever that it took. I'm pulling stuff out of these lagoons. I'm dealing with this. And then I work my way up. Everybody always imagines that there has to be these major programs that deal in whole health. But in reality, there's an epidemic in the country of just people that actually spend enough time thinking about what could possibly be going on and then you ignore far too many warning signs and so we just try to advocate for getting those things checked out and find fun ways to do it and like I, I know I have one that's fun about a colonoscopy where you know the idea is <clears throat> many people are somewhat averse to the idea of getting a colonoscopy due to the somewhat invasive nature of it but ultimately some really. people like that yeah some people do enjoy that's it a yes. shame here. yeah yeah I mean I looked at it like a great nap <laughs> I, I love being able to fall asleep and get woken up. I don't know. There's other people that... But then, you know, you take the idea of saying, what if you took and actually took the alternate route of there is a invention that you can do this yourself. Would you manually sit there and actually scan your own colon? And then, I don't know. For myself, I find it that I would much rather have someone else have to deal with that on their conscience. I mean, it, to, it's a dark to, place. It's to a every day time. be dealing with... <laughs> You know, just the sensations and everything of that isn't something I want to do. And, you know, and I, and I have a, myself, I don't have, like, my wife had cancer and had to have, a, you know, a major surgery. And my friend Shannon had open heart surgery, which are major. And I just had a colonoscopy done because I have a family history. But in that, they said that I had uh, precancerous nodules or something. And I thought nothing of it. And they said, yeah, that means that it would develop into cancer in six years or so. And now having that six years elapsed, sitting here, it has a much more profound impact on me to imagine had I been less aggressive about getting checked, which thanks to my wife and her predilection towards thinking that there's always something wrong, which is uh, okay. <laughs> to be fair, he looks like an unhealthy bastard. Uh, yeah, let's <laughs> yeah, to be honest, he looks like he's you know got a foot in the grave. Um, but 
had I not done that, that uh, you know, my situation would be invariably much more difficult right now. And just to be able to help others understand that, um, even on a small scale, I think is a very valuable thing. And so part of the, with a long-winded answer there, the idea was that we could start a podcast and be able to disseminate some of that information. And uh, this was a great intro into how one is operated as efficiently as possible. It's, there's, uh, unfortunately, there's, I'm sure there's way easier ways to do it than what I do. What I found, like, as we were kind of talking about before we got going on this is, I think we were talking about it on the phone, actually. Everybody says, you know, just record a podcast, throw it online. doesn't work like that. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you throw it online? I don't fucking know. Yeah. <laughs> How do you search that? What equipment to get? Here, spend $5,000 on equipment to get. I don't have that budget. Right. Well, or the propensity that people have to go and search Google, and then it comes up where somebody one time wrote, here, here's what I did. And your automatic response is, oh, this guy must know what he's talking about. And unfortunately, that's not always the case. Then you try to find their podcast and it's right. a million, a million <laughs> down. You can't even find it on the search history. Exactly. Well, those yeah. that can't do teach, right? I mean, come yeah. on now. That's I've right. I've many college professors like that. Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, from as a, as a means with which to disseminate knowledge and to do it in a fashion that is open to others' abilities to both interpret and possibly add feedback, I think it's a very valuable asset to any type of an organization, whatever you're looking to do. And something as simple as you taking the impetus to do this just shows a lot of foresight in the way that when you put this out there, the the beauty of the digital platform world is that once you've done this, it becomes a piece of, you know, something you've done, and it's always there. And you know, uh, the idea that retroactively one day, you know, we can do a reunion tour, fifteen years from now, and we'll be talking about how, you know, we'll be we all skate cancer from getting right, our right. Our you guys will be like, thank God Noah had that golf tournament, <laughs> we were able to play in it because now we know. Well, now I'm more like I have an excuse to tell my wife after a 12-pack when she catches me in the bathroom with my hand. Never mind. Yeah. We're going to go there. All right. Sorry about that. <laughs> I kind of want to go down my route. <laughs> no, no. It's okay. Noah told me to do this. Huh? No. Any wily veteran knows you don't need the bathroom. You just, you just wander around outside until nobody's looking. <laughs> well, one of the things I really like about, I mean, my... My reason for going and doing this was not... I mean, it was it was... For I joke around about it, so I can ask creepy questions and not be creepy. Because it can no, be, you're still creepy. I, I Let's creepy. not forget when Jim Rome got punched by it's true by Jim Everett. <laughs> <laughs> he did have a burning sensation. Yeah. Yeah, right. It's square right. in his nose. <laughs> so you can ask them, but there are, there could be implications. I'm not threatening violence in any which way, um, but Jesse likely is. <laughs> it's like you know me. You know, I felt yesterday he was threatening violence when he threatened to hit me in the nuts with a wrench. I was not threatening to hit you in the nuts with a wrench. I was informing you that if I slipped while turning this wrench, it would hit you in the testicles. I took it as a threat. And you shocked the life out of me for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I seen. I think that this is a very good dialogue. And, well, no, uh, this is a great little story he's trying to get at. He literally <laughs> shocked me because of it. Okay, okay. So I was holding rubber grip channel locks talking to his wife, holding it while he was loosening a gas line on his trailer. Even better, that it was a gas line with electricity. Perfect. There was yeah, no tanks smart. hooked up. Although, when we did unhook Residual it, in the smart. line. Yeah, there's <laughs> no bullet in the chamber. It's fine. <laughs> yes. yeah. And so I'm talking to his wife. I'm sitting there, not really paying a whole lot of attention. And he brings up the fact that 
he's about to hit me in the nose with this wrench. And I take it somewhat defensively and start to back up like he's going to try to do it, not thinking that there is a battery terminal right next to me on a copper line that I touched copper line to, and he has a metal tool. And so it starts shocking him, but I'm talking to his wife, so I'm not paying attention. I'm not looking and kind of hold it there for a second. And I'm, he couldn't figure out what that sparking noise was and why Jesse yeah. was shaking violently <laughs> next to him. So I finally back away from it. He drops the wrench and screams like a little girl. Find out I just shocked the shit out of him. So you're welcome. I just started your heart again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Turns out my cholesterol is much better this week. Yeah. Uh, Turns out I don't have any clogged valves in my yeah. heart there. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you just got to shake it loose. Well, that's that's just a good that's just a good OSHA minute for everyone. That's our safety minute. If you're, uh, regardless of any type of nut impact, you have to be sure that there's no open electrical currents. Always be aware of your surroundings. Mm-hmm. Tools. All right. Yeah. Even if you've yeah. had about five beers and you work on your buddy's trailer, okay? That's it was, right. It was four. Yeah. It could have been. I don't know. I had ten more after it, so. <laughs> yeah. And, and and just to just to make clear, this is just a trailer that hauls things. This isn't Jesse's home in the well, trailer park. Well, it, it's it, my... It, my <laughs> it actually might. <laughs> we haven't gotten that it, it can be my home. depends on how much I piss off my wife in a weekend. Yeah. That it, it could turn into my home. It is my camp trailer, so... The parking situation might be a little rocky, though. I mean, it being set up in your garage might cause conflicts. Eh. Well, well no. you know, this actually is a great segue into a opportunity that I found that <clears throat> many people find that having a man cave in their house is a very attractive option. <laughs> and I found that in the space-limited house that I have, albeit big, I have very little room with which to actually effectively have man any thing. kind of a man thing. Um, but I have came up with a theory... Because there is a very nice, um, I don't believe it's called a trailer park. I think it's like a seasonal home or something that's not far from my house. And I thought, what if I just buy one of these seasonal homes that's modular and transportable, i.e. a trailer? Not and then small. We call them small homes. Yeah. Though, right? yeah. And then I actually tricky, just, tricky, I just use home. this as my remote location of my man cave. And then I happen to be a very big fan of trailer park boys. Um, bubbles. Yeah, I can see you rocking bubbles glasses. I've always said that I'm a few bad decisions away from Ricky. Um, you know, so the kids can know that. You know, you got to catch a few lucky breaks, or you know, your trajectory can be completely different. I just let the liquor take over, really. Yeah, yeah. that's that's Leahy. The, liquor, yeah. the liquor's doing the talking. Yeah, but you know, I thought, well, what if I just buy one of these, and then I have this nice place, and I can just go over there and watch the games, sit out front with you know a lawn chair and a cooler. It seemed. Really, you know, so th- so just keep keep in mind that you know all of the listeners. I may start a business soon that has like a similar to Airbnb, but it'll be air trailers and air man cave, air man cave, board. and oh. we just start it, and we have these trailers that people aren't in, and then it becomes an area where you can go and you know watch games, play games, do whatever. It's just literally Noah and I sitting in a kiddie pool with our feet in there and a beer in hand, right. watching the game. Have you seen the episode where they they put tarps? All on the inside of the trailer and turn the whole inside of the trailer into oh, a pool. Oh, yeah, into a pool. Yeah, and then they start charging like a dollar a kid or something like yeah. that to come in. Yeah, and then it blows the wall out. Yeah, yeah I saw it. <laughs> it's like putting the hot tub in the back of a truck to go to the game. Yeah. I used to do that growing up. We would get the, uh, put a tarp in the back bed of the truck and then go to like three hot water heaters and dump, drain the hot water heaters in the bed of the truck and you have a driving hot tub. Come on, you're not even a good engineer. You run the exhaust pipe back up into the water. Bubbles. To heat it. Uh, yeah, that's CHP combined heat power. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Efficient at this point. We're not wasting anything. 
a problem when you get an engineer, an operator, and a sales guy all in one room. <laughs> we will figure it out. That's right. There's there's a means to make this work. Yeah. I was thinking the bubbles aspect, the heating aspect. I mean, it could be efficient, other than the fact of you know carbon monoxide poisoning. Minor details. Yeah. Actually, we're technically polishing it now by putting it through the water system, so we were really environmentally friendly. Right, and you can actually see it. It's more uh, because, of course, carbon monoxide is a very dangerous gas because it's odorless. But when it's under the water submerged and it's bubbling up, you can see the bubbles and know to avoid those bubbles. Safe safety. So do you stay out of the hot approved. tub at that point? Just away from the bubbles. I, myself, keep your head away yeah, from the bubbles. yeah, I would stay away from it. You'd be um, the driver. Yeah, probably. No, no, I'd, I'd be riding shotgun because I don't think... I, I, I don't, given that there's a hot tub in my trailer, I would imagine that drinking is involved. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't see a time where I am the designated driver of that type of an event. A DDD? Um, right. Maybe, but, you know, at this point, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> so do we just start a business plan here? Mobile hot tub? Mobile hot tubs? I'm that, more on board with the mobile man cave. Or the, just the trailer it's park. All in one. Man yeah, it's no, all in one. Man caves. No, you tow the man cave with the mobile hot tub. I like it. See, and or you can have transport, so it's kind of like Uber, Airbnb mixed. But hang out in the man cave, even sit in the hot tub while we bring you home. See, I mean, and people I, will get shitty drunk in the hot I, tub. I, I think it's you know the marketability of it is strong just because you know a lot of a lot of people that are more affluent like to go thrift shopping and do things like that. So this would be the man's version of that. Being I'm maybe I have a nice house somewhere and I do this. But, you know, a lot of times you go to a dive bar. Maybe a dive bar is just too expensive of an option and you'd rather find something else that's more personable. And in this case, you can have the full feature aspect of being being one with the trailer. It's like camping, but, you know, not quite as much nature. Well, no, you have an outdoor cot. So if you get too drunk to go home and don't want to piss the wife off, pull out the outdoor cot, and now you're camping on top of that. I have learned that's a, not a win-win situation there. Like, No, there's no you, winning. You're still in trouble. Like, You yeah. didn't go home, for one. Yeah. If you do go home, you were too drunk. So it's a lose-lose both times. Well, and then you have an automatic... Yeah. Uh, I'll skip that idea. <laughs> I'll take that idea away. That's we'll that's that that's yeah. That's what we call the incremental benefits or incremental costs of a situation, you know, or sunk costs, if you will. If you're in trouble either way, you may as well make the most of the night. Right, right. I, I've slept in many parking garages with that mentality. <laughs> How'd that work out for you at the end? I was sober when I woke up. Still in yeah. trouble though. <laughs> most times I was in my own car. Yeah. <laughs> I was always in my own car, dear. Yeah. Since I know you will listen to this. See, I can say whatever I want. My girlfriend doesn't listen to my podcast. Just remember what I said about the digital platform. Once <laughs> it's up there, it's up there. And one day, if there's one thing I know about partners, and this isn't just women, but that's my experiences with women, um, is they'll remember things and they will bring things up in arguments later. So what you may find is 15 years down the road... You may be in an argument, and she'll be like, oh, yeah? Remember 2019? Yeah, you and Jesse and that Noah guy? Yeah. (laughs) He's not wrong. I've been married (laughs) seven years. He is not wrong. I saw this, like, meme the other day, and it's like, you know, uh, women can't remember if they left their straightener plugged in, but they can remember when you called him a funny name six years ago. They didn't like. Yeah. Oh, I'm still in trouble for stuff from 2009. Okay? Remember that time you were supposed to go to the grocery store and you ended up at the bar with your buddy? Yeah, I do. Okay? <laughs> yeah. I think the, the meme right after that was uh, women take, you know, be out in 10 minutes. 
from getting ready, it takes 45 minutes. Men, I'll be home in, you know, 10 o'clock. You get right, yeah, it's the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, you know, as you get older, I, you know, I used to, I used to imagine that I'd have, like, this this bar I would go to and it would always be there and like I'd go in and I'd spend all these hours and I can say that my management bandwidth and the time that I have being a father of three plus running a business and also actually functionally you know back to the school I'm doing my MBA at Illinois right now online and the time that I have is almost non-existent so I don't know where I came up with the delusion that I would just have these four or five hours that I could spend Sitting in a bar, just sitting around with randos, drinking I like PBR television. Really, like you grew up watching Cheers, like we did. Yeah, like, right. You just see, like, oh yeah, what did those guys do that? Like they had wives <laughs> at home. Like I couldn't spend every night three, four hours at a bar after I get off work every night and still be married. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't work. But you know, and not, not to mention the financial impacts. Like that's you know, what. Yeah, there's a real question. I, I'm right hoping they could run tabs. Okay, and if I remember the episodes correctly, Norm had a pretty high tab. Yeah. <laughs> Right, but but you know when you think about the time that that took, but that's also like Friends and these other shows that exist where nobody actually has a job. Ross, all was, Ross was a professor. It was, it was always some abstract marketing position, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, or else I just I happen to live in this eight thousand dollars a month apartment. That's what I don't get the most of that show. Right. Never so they were, if you did, so if you watch the background, like the original episodes, they were subletting it from somebody's grandmother. So it was is like a Section Eight that they got. Uh, they jumped. Well, I know. I know. Monica, I do want to point out my shock and awe that Jesse just brought up how he understands the dynamics of Friends. You know, I grew up when Friends was originally <laughs> on okay. TV. Okay. I want to bring up another fact here that I brought up a Friends comment during a sales call the other day, and he called me out on it, and then persisted to correct me on what I said. Friends wise, if you're going to use trivia, use it right. Okay. No, you, you gave me shit about, wow, you really know friend shit, and then you corrected me on it. I just think to keep everything moving smoothly, we shouldn't mention that 90210 has been recanceled, because I have a feeling that Jesse's going to be absolutely devastated over I this. was not allowed to watch that show growing up. I grew up in a good Mormon household. Oh. And well. 90210 was just too racy. That's too racy. Yeah, Dylan McKay. Yeah. Oh, dude, the bad boy in the jean jacket. Yeah, no. Did God. you know that there was a, uh, a Joey had a show? Uh-huh. After after Friends, it was called Joey. Yeah, it was called yeah. Joey. Where Joey moved to L.A. Uh-huh. and became an actor. It made it like six episodes. Well, no. at least at least he no, finally no. did but become an actor. That? It made it was like twenty something episodes. It went two seasons, tw- over twenty episodes the first season. I think I, I only watched about six episodes. Oh yeah, it's absolutely horrible. Well, I think part of it is you expect it to be like Friends, but I found it on Daily Motion the other day mm-hmm. when I was looking at porn. <laughs> and, <laughs> Crossed it. I'm like, <laughs> you mean you were getting a colon checked? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah, looking yeah, at yeah. it. And I thought, well, this actually seems pretty good. Actually, <laughs> threw it on TV with a the girlfriend there while I was looking at porn. And uh, yeah, no, horrible episode. We watched two of them. Never went back to it. But yeah, no. Joey has twenty some episodes first season. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I haven't watched it, so I can't really. Uh, you need daily motion. It gives you a reason to have that. That app. Well, the most disappointing thing about all these resurgences we're getting from our my childhood shows—they're bringing back Party of Five now, but it's about an immigrant family. So it's kind of like, all right, the political agenda had to be involved here. It does. <laughs> I saw the preview the other day on—I think I was watching YouTube TV or something. I was reading this article the other day that was talking about um, uh, how the Office could never have been like if the Office was to be made today, it would get shut down and every everybody would be sued. So that just kind of shows us the generational gap there is between Noah and I and Stephen. 
Yeah, he's talking about the office being redone. We're talking about friends in 90210 here. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's, you know, 10, 15 years. Give or take. The office was canceled like two years ago, wasn't it? I do want to point out that I'm not 40. Not 40. <laughs> I'm only 24, so 15 <laughs> still nails that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. But there's, you know, like, I mean, we haven't gotten into Elf or some of the real 80s shows that were. Oh, I, I thought you were talking about the movie. Girlfriend no, watches that not. all the time. Not ALF, ALF. Yeah. Alien Life Form. This is an acronym. Oh. Mm-hmm. I mean, We're you know, it, those conspiracies. Well, mm-hmm. you know, what's really no, interesting about this, uh, the pop culture stuff is with how the digital animations and things have come a long way, I think there's a great um, allusion to the way, not illusion, but an allusion to the way that, say, jobs are happening, in that I used to think Gremlins was extremely scary, and <laughs> I, I hate to admit this, but my father took me when I was, I think, five or six, and I then thought Gremlins were in my closet, I would say for at least five years, to where I would convince myself of this on any given night. But I do have to also clarify that above my closet was this area of the wall where when cars would be going by the house, the headlights would kind of go across, and it could create some shadows that were very gremlin-esque. Um, but, so I digress a bit, but my children, two-year-old and a four-year-old boy, will watch gremlins now and laugh because it's so terribly fake. And, and you thought it was horrorous. And ridiculous. And then, you know, they maybe have seen, not that I would ever put on, because that might be child endangerment, say Transformers movies, (laughs) where they're just running around and blowing things up, and, you know, they're two-year-olds running around going pew, 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 and thinking it's awesome, and I'm thinking, was I just weak? Or is it that everything seems less scary because it's so unreal? It's comical and puppet. Right, it's complete puppetry. It's the full-on CGI. Right. Yeah, or like when Gumby was this amazing thing. Like, look, how can they possibly make this clay move? And now, you know, you have kids in the pre-K class that can make a movie on, you know, their HP or Apple computer at school that is infinitely better than Gumby ever was. Mm -hmm. And so they're not afraid. And so I don't don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing because it may be reflective of a deep-seated weakness that I have. Um, and <laughs> no, it's a very true statement. Like, I have a younger a son, and, and he's all into the scary movies, the older ones, and they're nothing for him. Like, I always put them on, like, all right, buddy, you're, you're mm-hmm. eight years old now. Okay, maybe we can watch the original It. All right, let's check it out. <laughs> and the and he's you, laughing. You haven't right? seen it in 20 years? Oh, he's laughing. And we watched Child's Play the other day, like the original Child's Play. And he's like, this is hilarious. I'm like, this scared the living shit out of me when I was a kid, son. You know, it makes me, like... <laughs> you need to pay better attention, son. <laughs> It kind of makes you you think about like look at the development of you know technology and, and scary movies alone you know in the past from the 80s to now uh, you can go back farther than that but i'm gonna go 80s to now and look at how much scarier the movies are now versus the 80s what's it gonna be in 20 more well, years visually they're more scary their storylines are terrible these days it's well, yeah, it's just it's a girl crawling upside down down the stairs now is all they ever do was that that alligator one there was that I just watched yeah, one. It was about it was about there was a hurricane and this woman and her father got trapped and then I I watched some B rate movies. I always say that there's <laughs> there's an inverted parabola of whether or not I'm going to finish a movie with the scale on the X axis being how good a movie is from zero to ten. So if it's zero, there's a very high chance I'm gonna finish it because it's so terrible. Just as much a chance as if it's a really, really good movie. It's and a, a big inverted U. Yeah. Well, yeah, for yeah, I should have, I should have clarified. Yeah, 
If you like, I have a movie for you. Have you I'll, watched? I'll research it here for a second. Have you, you watched Haunted at Hill House? Oh yeah, it was Netflix. Series. Yeah, the Netflix. How did you feel about that? I thought that it was actually pretty good. Um, I, I I'm a big fan of those types of, you know, the the murder mystery. You know, the there was there was of course some continuity issues that I I took with it, but that's also that I try to be less objective when I'm looking at the quality of that. Um, but you know, the family going back and then the timelines kind of crossing and the the mixed signals as to how that's happening. I thought it was pretty well done. I I was a I really liked that. It was a solid series where. Uh, you know, I I can't necessarily say it was a it was a suspense movie mm-hmm. for sure, but it was one of those where I didn't really see it ending how it did. They did a good job of the twist because that's the thing I dislike most about like scary movies or suspense movies is you always know at the end it's going to happen exactly like you think it is. They did a good job with that one. Well, the one you know that that's the 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 equal opportunity side of things you know that Jesse had mentioned that about certain shows that the one good thing is that it's not nearly as predictable just because when I was a kid there was the token black guy and he of course got killed all he the died time. first every time yeah. First, yeah. Yeah, yeah he was always the first one and I know guy. South Park has yeah. done spoofs on that as well, as <laughs> well yeah, I mean it was a whole movie Scream was all based around that yeah right yeah. right yeah <laughs> Total black guy's gonna die yeah, has yeah. sex dies in the movie yeah yeah <laughs> don't go in there yeah, yeah. well and, you know and it's you look at the 80s with the slasher films and you think my favorite how scary it was and then you know you watch it and you think it's just so ridiculously fake but that's also you know you go back to war of the worlds and there was a generation of people that heard that on the radio and a significant well i shouldn't say significant. Oh, it was a pandemic a ton of people yeah. not statistically significant but a lot thought oh my gosh we're actually being invaded by aliens <laughs> yeah, so, they didn't realize that it was actually just a, a fictional uh, newscast yeah they thought this was real life they were blowing up new york and people were like going into bunkers and like yeah. getting reserves and getting their rifles together yeah it's, it's going down, son. <laughs> you know, going out of that bunker, I could totally see you getting a bunker at your next place. I, I could see you, I don't have one. I could see yeah. you being a... Uh, yeah, why would I need a new place? <laughs> <laughs> Put so much money in the last one. I could see you being a prepper. Uh, I built this to be BTK, too, and then I decided I like people, so I guess it's a good bunker. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> I'm just the political atmosphere, if it keeps going the way it's going, we're all going to be near that bunker. Actually, we've talked about that in the water and wastewater world to bring that kind of back around, as we've always talked about. Like, if the world did end, like, it all went to shit, right? Where would you run to to hide, you know, in a zombie apocalypse, whatever? I know where there's a whole lot of water treatment plants, like, with giant storage tanks that oh, yeah. <laughs> we could go take over and defend easily because they're all built for safety and security, and they have underground basins you could drain and clean, and yeah. Well, and that, that leads to a big point. I don't know if... Uh, the company you were at previously, um, I don't know if you want to mention name or, or not. but They're a large corporation. They can't hurt me much these days, but <laughs> so they don't like their name being used. I, I usually keep company names out of things uh, anyways, but uh, when I was with, I'm going to straight up say it, Peoria. Um, I usually keep them out. Of yeah, course, right now, I'm Peoria, not Peoria is not going to do anything. <laughs> when I was with Peoria, they had, um, you know, they had a guy... That his sole job was prepping worst case scenario. So they had a whole plan where if pandemic hit, you know, within 24 hours, every employee of the city would be vaccinated with whatever needed to be done to keep the infrastructure going. Mm -hmm. They would have, you know, Rio Vista would essentially be the base for all the employees' family. 
because if the families aren't safe, the employees aren't going to continue working. You do realize this guy has come up with a new plan now. You just told everybody. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> the dude's crazy. <laughs> he was, he, it was, so I had, when I started at the city, there was three days of pure book training, like school, that we had to go through. And he was like a full day of disaster training. Like if the dams broke, whether it was, you know, Roosevelt Lake or Peoria. Like, what would happen? Like, if Roosevelt broke, the casino, Wild Horse Pass, would be 10 feet from the roof in water. Right. Well, you know, and and this actually speaks to the point of the 2018 Water Infrastructure Act and that Mm -hmm. translation of the sustainability to resiliency because a massive aspect of resiliency overall is the safety and security, both from bad actors, natural disasters, or cyber security risks. Um, These all come into play. And, you know, currently, given the mandates that came within that bill last year, by September of next year, any water district that serves over 50,000 to 100,000 people has to have an updated emergency response plan um, completed and submitted because there is, of course, one thing that is misunderstood is the susceptibility of, as we become more urbanized, in being able to continue both energy and water uh, and the delivery of those two key elements of daily life and what would happen if that were to stop. I mean, the idea, <clears throat> simply if water stopped flowing, then you think, okay, well, what does this mean? Not only can you not drink it, there's no toilets, there's no hand washing, then there's nothing else. Then if there's no treatment on the other side, then what? Is, where is all of the stuff going that had been treated? And then you can go into, you know, getting into what's called a black sky event in the electrical utility, which means suddenly the utility grid goes out. And a misconception that a lot of people have is that, well, you just turn it back on and then the energy comes. But given the way the transmission and distribution lines operate, you can't do that. And that to get it, just take Arizona, for example, and we had a DOE and EPA came out and we did a seminar about two or three years ago on this exact topic of saying, at water plants, how susceptible are you to variations in the electric grid and vice versa and you think about that connectivity of energy and water and so this goes into some of the jobs you could possibly be doing but the idea that if you don't have water water is the primary cooling apparatus for any kinds of gas turbines or other types of generation assets that a electric utility would have and electric motors and i.e pumps are the primary means of transport for any type of clean water or treated water and so you get into a black sky event you may have a month to two months to even 90 days before you can actually get all of that back online and what would that mean to society at large most of it would fail all the basic white girls so on their phones would there's actually the this yeah. yeah so <laughs> the city of phoenix actually with uh, their leadership they have in place now actually has a game plan in place for a black sky event, um, it, it being a science fiction type scenario, but yet the city of Phoenix still implemented and put a bunch of budget money into, into backup generators and fuel supplies. And what would they do to keep the entire city running in case of a black sky event? And their leadership now has invested several millions of dollars into generators all over. They could actually sustain for several weeks. So tagging on to both of these... The generators that are placed at all of the water water treatment plants, 
uh-huh. that you see, that we see. Well sites and whatnot, yeah. Are those, uh, you know, a generator at a at a wastewater treatment plant, mm-hmm. is that enough to that itself keep the plant not Well, how much time, hours. yeah. It, it, I was going to say, how much time do you think hours, that would be? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, say you had endless amounts of diesel you can get there and everything else, that generator would be able to keep that plant running. Assuming the supply chain is not interrupted, correct? Correct. So, yeah, and I mean, the problem with that is, I mean, in an extended outage, you would have generator power is not the cleanest thing in the world. You would start frying electric motors after a sustained period of time running off a generator that way. But yeah, technically, they could make it several months if they had the diesel to run the generators. So they could make it. Going off the same question to you on the electrical side, uh, you know, solar flares being something that, I mean, I'm, I love conspiracy theories. Uh, solar flare hits, EMP knocks out the electrical grid. What, say it was, you know, say Phoenix got hit with the EMP. Just Phoenix. None of the surrounding cities got hit. What would it take to get the city back up and going electrical-wise? Well, you got to think about electricity flowing through <coughs> distribution, transmission distribution lines, similar to the way water flows, and that there's a certain volume and speed with which it can do now of course when you're dealing with voltage and amperage and and kilowatts it's a little different but the same concept applies to you can't just turn it back on full bore you need to begin to let each individual segment so i can't really speak to the actual timing it would take if phoenix but i can say that just for for them to be hit with it likely it wouldn't just affect them because of the interconnectedness of these grids and so with the different electrical companies from APS SRP they're going to share lines at some point correct and and with the way that APS and SRP are set up that it would it would affect both of them because they serve you know city centers and then the outward areas um you know the way that it it's set up you have one electrical district if you look in a lot of these cities in the valley you have srp in one area and then just outside of the city it's aps and you know like right down downtown here i think downtown gilbert <coughs> i think i think the way it works is that aps has all of the downtowns and then all the surrounding areas go to srp but that could be flip-flopped i do get confused on that so sometimes. do they run so say aps on the inside srp is on the exterior side of it so APS is going to run through SRP's equipment to get out there, or do they have their own set of power line and distribution lines to get to that power source? Well, I believe that they there is a sharing, but I think that for the most part, it's it's individualized because you have to be able to do the operation and maintenance of it. But on some of the major lines, like you know, for things such as you know, takes take the nuclear Palo Verde, for instance. I mean, that is a conglomeration of several utilities, including APS, SRP, NV Energies, uh, PNM in New Mexico, and I think SCE. And so any of those lines that take things in and out is all shared. So a question on the electrical side that I do have is, so my understanding with how the electrical grid is set up is the grid is fed the amount of electricity that the for lack of lack of a better term the surges that the city would see so in the dead of summer the amount of electricity that the grid would be facing on that is what the grid is being fed full-time no 
No, they you have dial a, that. Down. You have to dial it down, or else you blow out. You'd blow out your lines. It's similar to how a water distribution system works. I mean, you're you're used to that. You you maintain a certain pressure in a water distribution system to meet supply as it goes or up. Demand, I mean, yeah, and, right. And APS has something. And so you need like where you would have a PRV, you would have a step down, and so you have things like that. But even a PRV can't take so much pressure without causing gyrations and other things the same thing would apply into electricity distribution and one of the things that APS is doing now there's something I used to work with NOAA back in my operations days are called power shed events so a lot of your large treatment facilities that are out there um, they get called upon by APS to shed power go down to only running essentials what is actually needed to run the plant for an extended period of time we used to have to do those at the treatment facility where they'd call in especially on hot summer days where a lot of AC units are running all that, and there's a large, large demand on the city and on the power grid. They would call up all the main treatment plants and all the large energy users out there for a power shed event, and you would sit in the dark for like six hours and just shut off equipment, just running essential equipment. A lot of times right. it involved me turning stuff on in hand, running it for a second, turning it off, just doing what we could to shed power. Right, and that and that, and that deals in that peak demand. And it was you know they they would call they call an event based upon a lot of times it's the temperature because you can statistically take a reference point to say that if the temperature goes up to 116 degrees, that the amount of a load that's going to be drawn by the HVACs and the air conditioners in the area are going to be X, and that is going to exceed the capacity. And so, if you exceed the capacity, then you end up into getting like if a pipe goes dry and then you get a hammer that flows through and so the same thing when it goes dry then suddenly you get a blackout and that's where you've seen rolling blackouts in other areas um and so you don't send the same amount that's actually an interesting thing about the way that Palo Verde sends energy over to California as a base load but then there's all the wind turbines and things that you'll see if you drive to Palm Springs many times they actually shut off those wind turbines so that they don't produce energy on days where the solar is already producing a ton and they in fact send it back to arizona and not only do they send it back but they pay arizona to take it because otherwise they end up with issues on their grid so there's a lot of very nuanced issues that take place within a transmission and distribution network that really aren't public knowledge um, and it goes into many of the more advanced ideas of the solar generation and many people believe that if you just slap solar all over everything it just works but the transmission and distribution systems that exist aren't set up to take that type of power nor can that power derive the base load necessary to get to those outlying areas and so it's got to be a more incremental change and you could definitely be more aggressive by no means am i saying that you can't implement it but the idea that you could just automatically stop utilizing power plants and just put up solar panels um, it is a bit of a misconception. It would take a significant amount of resources to make it happen. Well, so, isn't a true statement something I've heard over the years? It might just be rumor and conjecture, but you could the U.S. could build six more nuclear power plants in Montana, Wyoming, you know, your, your desolate areas, and power the entire grid for the U.S. to the point we would never have a power shortage again. I mean, you, you work in the electrical world, the energy world. I don't, but yeah, I mean, you could. I mean, you could definitely theoretically build things of that size. You'd need to put in a significant amount of infrastructure, and I think that we've seen, you know, tying into a bit of the without getting too political. This this applies to any denomination of politics. The idea of actually taking on a massive 
infrastructure project is nearly impossible in in the terms of what's happening currently politically, no matter what side of the fence you're on. I mean, the idea that of doing the interstate system that was done here or building Hoover Dam, those types of projects, unfortunately, at the current time, seem to be untenable simply because the cost would be exorbitant. The long-term benefit would be great, but the short-term benefit would be less than if you just did something else, and therefore we've become a very short-sighted country when it comes to actually spending those dollars primarily because you know somebody will say well i could spend it better here or there and then you get into the fact of if you did have a grid like that and it is supplied from a national perspective then it just becomes a taxation issue how are you going to actually do your o m costs because eventually you're going to have to do work on this which would mean you're going to need to generate revenue somehow you're going to go to people and say hey i need to do this and once you've given it to them it becomes a right and once it becomes a right, then they don't want to pay anything more for it, even if paying that little bit more actually attributes to the standard operation of the set equipment. So it's a very complex issue. So it could, could theoretically be done um, on a size and scale necessary, but... Uh. Well, that, that relates directly back to... I was having a conversation with um, uh, my old boss in Peoria that I mean, we were talking about, you know, meters in like water meters water meters mm -hmm. you know ideally the 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 best technology out there for water meters in the states that i know about is an ami system so you have you know your meters send out cellular transmission that your towers pick up the towers push it back to a server system the server system then gives you as a customer instant access to what your meter's doing well, what it's talking about doing. conspiracy theories you have there's a lot of people out there that think that those type of systems are monitoring your toaster in your house too okay and right yeah, yeah. Well, why is this sensor on here it must be a camera yeah well, but the same person will take the cell phone into the bathroom yeah <laughs> yeah but yeah that conversation got brought up with you know it's going to cost us you know for you know just shits and grins a hundred thousand dollars to upgrade this system how are we going to pay for that? So we have to raise everybody's water rates. Nobody wants to raise your water rates, but we want the technology in there. We well, want I mean, it, but we don't want to pay for that's it. That's where somebody like Noah comes in with a company that he runs and he does. is He comes and looks at a project like that and goes, okay, what are the efficiencies we're going to gain by going to an AMI meter system? You know, Right now, we currently pay X amount of meter readers to go out and manually read these dials. And they do a great job. They're a great service to our community, but... In today's day and age, it's not really needed, really. I mean, and, right? And they're excellent. They're, they're like ninety-nine point seven percent accurate. I couldn't do that. As I couldn't go out and then read meters and be ninety-nine point seven percent accurate on reading fourteen-digit numbers. Right. And, right now, and a significant amount of those savings is, in, you know, unfortunately, in the sense of a reduction in workforce and liability. So if you go to an AMI system, you don't have meter readers. Those meter readers aren't stepping on other individuals' yards. They're not driving trucks down the street. You don't have any of the capital expense of having that equipment nor the liability that you take on for it. So there's a very strong incentive to do it. But also when you go into, I'm eliminating jobs, even though the attrition rate is rather high, and quite frankly, if you did a... 18 month to two year rollout most likely any of the non attrition 
related individuals still on site working for you would likely be able to be moved up into a more advanced level of telemetry or something they could work on in that same system that would raise the bar of everything. But I think it, it actually touches on a more important case of the data that you're able to garner from that and having a two-way communication between a meter and a supply source so that you could actually detect leakage for them preemptively, meaning if they have anomalies within their bills, a simple text alert can go out that says, here, you're, you're right now using, statistic, statistically speaking, there's a 60% chance that you have a leak, and given the size and scope of it, it's in your hot water heater. Yeah. Well, yeah, looking, they do, I mean, they, they do like, you normally use 4,000 gallons a month. You're up to 40,000 right now, which you ought to be personally before. Leak. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's a leak in my irrigation system I didn't know about, but I had a very, very green, green belt behind my house. Yeah. <laughs> so I found yeah. out where my water was going. <clears throat> well, and that, I mean, a, a very similar technology is being currently used in Peoria where the meter detects, you know, down to a 0.15 gallons per minute uh, rate going through that meter. If it runs at that on a regular 24 hour basis, there's a leak indicator that comes up. Now, that's where the break of communication struggles with that. And because that, because there's no current or constant communication between there, we don't know that there's a leak there until we get there the next time and read it and then it comes up right on our system. But then it also has a sporadic leak. You know, if you water on a regular basis at, you know, 10 o'clock and, and 6 o'clock at night and you use usually, you know, 50,000 gallons in that or 5,000 gallons a day doing that and all of a sudden your bill jumps up to 10,000 gallons a day the meter is going to indicate you have a sporadic leak here it's not consistently running but you have a sporadic leak there within those times it's in your irrigation system you need to get that checked so there's that technology there but that goes back to the ami where you know if you could have that constant reading you'd be able to detect that save consumer money save resources be the environmentally friendly aspect of not wasting water, but nobody wants to pay for that. Yeah, and it goes back to this could be taken a lot further also when the city start to implement this and uh, bring it in and embrace it is you could have an app. A city could have an app where you could watch your water meter run. Um, so you yourself would know that, hey, I've got a leak going on somewhere. I'm on vacation. I know nothing's running at the house, but I've got my meters running right now. So it could even take away from being the city's responsibility to alert you that you you have a league to a simple app design could make it so a homeowner could figure it out. But that goes straight back to the cost of having a third party do it. <clears throat> design an app, the back the you know the back end work to doing so. Something that I want to talk about on this before we get too far off of this electromagnetic radiation. You are out of my ballpark here, so that is your field, Noah, not mine. I don't, I don't have, I mean, I just had an MRI done on my arm because I tried to Ninja Warrior the other day and I think I tore my bicep, but, um, <clears throat> well, I, and here's what, what you're trying to Ninja Warrior. I want to hear that I want to hear first, to be honest. Okay, well, uh, so the town of Gilbert had just opened up this nice new Ninja Park. Um, over That's like the legitimate ultra, or the national Ninja Warrior. Yeah. They have it. They I have the wall. Yeah. They got the little finger wall, and they have the. But what I was doing was I decided that there was these, there's these wheels that are like monkey bars, but they spin. And so you go out and you get onto it and you go. And I was moving across it pretty well, and then I, you know, I had my right arm up, and then I let go, and I was doing the spin, not thinking that I'm sort of fat, I'm sort of old. I didn't warm up. <laughs> And suddenly as I'm doing it, I heard what sounded like beef jerky being torn. Like when you get that bag of beef jerky and it's really big 
and you just can't quite, you don't want to try to just chew it, so you rip it, and it kind of goes... That's what I heard. Um, I didn't feel a pop, so I didn't know if it was torn, but ultimately it has not played ball with healing, so I tore it on the Atlas wheel or something like that. So legitimately some Ninja Warrior shit tore your bicep. Yeah, yeah. and I felt <laughs> terrible because then my son wanted to do all of these other fun games there, and I had to explain to him that it's not very safe because my right arm is completely shot, and I can't, as he's climbing above my head, if he falls, I'm going to go, oh, and then he's just going to get more hurt, and I'm going to have to deal with that on my conscience. So I said, we got to go. We're out. I like the fact that he put in the fact that he didn't warm up. That was the issue there, he's right? Yoga. Well, I'm not he's saying, I'm not saying not that. Not the fact that he's a foot taller than me and easily yeah. 300 plus. Yeah. Well, I'm, just, I'm not saying that if I had warmed up, things would have definitely been okay. <laughs> but by not warming up was just so disastrously. Definitely not okay. Not okay. Not okay at all. So that's really what I know. Now you know, but I think that where you're leading into is the the ability of utilizing different technologies in order to actually create algorithms of the types of flow. And I think that ultimately, when you get into a metering source, the to to put smart meters, AMI meters, on a house makes much more sense than if you were to just start putting sensors into your distribution network, because you could mathematically map out on a GIS scale exactly how the usage is flowing in a system if you just had enough sub-metering stations or district metering and you could then take in any anomalies that happen at point C would have a number of other sub-points that you could then map out with near certainty of exactly what house it is. So the idea that it's some kind of a, a, a mechanism with which to steal the data from your home is somewhat of a misnomer because you could essentially do that all with just doing things in the ground so one of the things that kind of where i was going with that is one of the concerns and it's like i said i love conspiracies i'm going to dive straight headfirst into this so the uh 5g that's coming out the electromagnetic radiation so military radio you mean yeah, yeah. so kind of going off of that is i found out that your typical uh you know RF read meter that runs off cellular data within a one meter radius of that puts out, you know, X amount of electromagnetic radiation. Um, and what they're, the legal limit in the U.S. for safe conditions is 10 times higher than what the standards are in the European Union on mm. that. And what they're saying, again, just conspiracy, is a lot of health defects from birth are coming from uh, a lot of times in while the child's in the womb if the bed master bedroom or bed backs up to uh, a lot of times it's uh, you know smart meters from electric you know something where they're able to grab the read it's sending off a signal outside of so I was, I was just curious if you had any experience with radiation coming off of those or any thoughts on well it's just it's just generations of living under the power lines right like i grew up where i grew up in in northern utah we had power lines running over my house and i i i i came out okay like i think this is uh think. relatively yeah <laughs> yeah right <laughs> every generation story. has this it seems like this uh from a cancer aspect jesse's doing well <laughs> mentally uh yeah. we're gonna let that one hang well i yeah i, I think from a radiate i mean we i think we we attribute certain aspects of different technologies to a fear factor and ultimately the idea of this could cause this we have what's you know what's deemed a you know denominator 
neglect, meaning you don't look at the denominator. You think of if one person out of 10,000 gets this, you humanize that, and oh my gosh, this is terrible, instead of statistically thinking about it as a 0.001% chance of happening. So yes, I'm sure there are some health impacts, but I've seen the same things on you know Lester Holt's Dateline when he's not doing Catch a Predator when he would talk about things like cell phone usage and then it became the big thing of don't hold it don't put it in your chest pocket because it'll definitely keep, cause you keep it out of your pocket and it's know, and it's like sperm count right? yeah. yeah and I don't know I mean I, I I guess there's probably a myriad of things that could affect you but that goes back to when we were talking about nuclear power that the actual per capita deaths from any type of nuclear energy comparatively to any types of other aspect whether it be coal natural gas or even solar there's less people dying of nuclear energy accidents even with all of the major fukushimas and others Chernobyls and whatnot yeah the safety aspects they've built into these power plants and we always like think our generation is the smartest and we're so much smarter even than the titanic sinks um but yeah the safety aspects we put in place because of chernobyl and all the meltdowns that nuclear power actually is a pretty clean way to go I mean, i'm not an energy expert that's where noah's noah's territory well and I, I think that i mean it is it's it's actually very clean the only the downside is you do have some highly radioactive material but my understanding with that is that the uh, you know radioactive castings the the discharge from those can actually be there's i was watching this uh i think it was pbs or something like that had done a, a documentary series on uh modern-day nuclear energy, how they're on, like, the fourth generation of nuclear reactors or fifth or something like that, and how, you know, they they highlighted four different types of nuclear reactors, all of them having the, you know, the built-in safety features to where they, it's impossible to overheat. When they start to overheat, they submerge them totally, you know, pull away. Oh, yeah, they can remove them in, like, 0.1 seconds or something like that. And they pull them away to where, you know, separate enough to where the reaction stops happening, but... One of them that I, re- I really saw interesting was they actually take the nuclear waste from previous reactors and they can actually use that and reuse that to knock it down anymore. They didn't go over what the nuclear waste of that one would be. It's always, we're getting more efficient, we're refining, we're getting better. I, I, I've seen different studies and whatnot that nuclear power plants these days, the waste that they produce is, is minimal compared to what we used to produce. I mean, still, we don't want any waste, but, I mean, Newton's third law prevents that. Well, and I think it's because it's a tangible thing. You know, when you have nuclear waste, it's in these barrels that get encased in 10 feet of concrete that get sat somewhere. And you can see that and think, oh, my God, there was this many this year. It's going to be so much worse. And, you know, I think part of what's happening in the atmospheric sciences world and, you know, depending on where you're your predilection of politics falls, whether you call it global warming or whatever you'd like to call it. The idea of an output being, I'm dumping a bunch of shit into the air or I have a bunch of shit sitting here. Eventually, we're going to have to come to terms with the idea that it's sort of all dangerous and we really need to quantify what that looks like. Well, in either way, you got to put shit somewhere. It's going so Right, there is an output. You cannot extract Space energy. a good idea to me, but... If it did, if it didn't cost a million dollars to put uh, like a pound, you know, yeah, relative. Well, you know, and I actually I went. You know, Arizona has this speaker series, um, and my wife and I go to it. And we just went out this week and saw Dr. Robert Ballard, who ironically was the guy who discovered the Titanic, and you know, and he had kind of pointed out some very interesting ideas about 
the bottom of the ocean floor is less known than, say, the surface of Mars right now, and that we've put people on the moon, but we have never put any person in the Mariana Trench at the deepest part of the ocean. So we have a better understanding of extraterrestrial planets than we do of our own submerged Earth. And then the other idea was there's a ton of minerals and other things in these, you know, the Earth is consistently eating itself and healing itself through the plate tectonics and you know one plate submerges under another on the continental rifts and that drives mountains up and then that's how earthquakes form but in the on the base of the ocean there's this massive mountain range that's continuously the plates are ripping apart and then the magma lava is boiling up and then it's sealing similar to the coagulation of blood and then it reforms itself but also down there are all of these other types of metals and minerals and things that are mined and not to mention these shafts that are blowing out six seven eight hundred degrees heat where possible disposal ability could happen i don't know whether that translates into nuclear or not i'm not making any assertions but the idea is that there could possibly be functional ways to deal with these things in other fashions than we currently do of just encasement and set somewhere well it's one of those things too that you know <clears throat> Once you put a dollar aspect on waste, once you make the waste of nuclear valuable, people are going to find a way to sell it right. and, you know, find something that that nuclear waste can be used as. That's, I mean, you know, dollar value is a relative. I mean, you could, there's a study that was done, oh, I don't know, probably five, six, seven years ago, something like that, by the utility director for Las Vegas Valley Water, where she would solve the entire drought issue of Texas, the Southwest, California, the whole nine. But it came down to a dollar issue. You could actually run a pipeline or a canal system, whatever you want to do, all the way to the Mississippi River, plumb it over, come over the Rockies, do what you got to do, get it all the way to, from uh, Mississippi to California, and you would be able to essentially solve all drought problems in the U.S. The biggest issue is the cost, of course, you know, the dollar value involved with doing something like that, but... So, and that kind of spurs into, you know, devil's advocate, would you cause issues in that? I mean, obviously, environmental impacts of building, you know, now. Yeah, where the canals run through the pipelines. The biggest environmental impact they found was doing something like that, uh, the amount of water you would draw out of the Mississippi would lower the Mississippi one foot. So, it seems not real big, but where it discharged into the ocean, it would have it would have dried up. I don't, know, I don't remember the exact number, but it was a, a good amount of land. Dried up. <laughs> that was, it was a, a fishing area before it would have dried it up. But you, you you weigh that out with the California drought we've had, which is a paper drought. We can go into that in another episode if you want. But uh, it would solve all drought issues across Arizona, California, Nevada, New Mexico, states, and, and millions and millions of people that are facing a huge shortage in the next 10 years. So, and it come down to money on that one. And politics, like Noah brought up earlier, with large-scale projects like that where you're crossing state lines, they just can't be done these days with the political atmosphere. You couldn't have a Panama Canal or a Hoover Dam. Right, yeah. right. Even though, you know, and it's just, it's it goes back to the theory of what's driven me in my career of going from, you know, looking at designs and then watching those designs be manipulated down to the lowest common denominator of first cost and... Standing by, and I think on a national scale, it gets magnified to a higher degree because you can't functionally make effective changes to these major systems. However, you know, I think there's still hope in the sense that 
<coughs> we start to talk about the resiliency, and I think, <coughs> not to become a chicken little, but when you start to say things like, the grid could go out, and if your dependence on all of your smart home assets, you know, you have your Nest thermometer, you have your Alexa, you have your television, everywhere you get your phone, you have to charge it, otherwise you don't have communications. There's no home lines. I don't have a home phone line. I pay Cox to have a business line, but it's a digital line, so it's really just cosmetically translated across the bandwidth of the Internet. So you don't have any way, if suddenly the electricity goes out, <clears throat> you're toast. And eventually that's going to come to a head. I don't, I, I don't think, I'm not... You know, I'm not nostradamically saying that there's going to be this terrible event and everybody should watch out. Even though I know that you really do love a good conspiracy theory, I could probably weave a few together. I've always said I'd be a good cult leader if only I had less morals. My um, life always says I'm actually a good doomsday person. I can treat water and I can make beer. So yeah. I would be yeah. highly sought after in a doomsday scenario. I'm just really good at convincing people that they should give me their things. Well, you are like six foot seven, three hundred pounds. Yeah. Is that forcefully convincing? Yeah. yeah. I, I, I won't break it down into any more elemental net issues. I'll just say it, I have a, a way of persuading people. Usually through violence. Yeah. No, it usually doesn't come to violence, Jesse. <laughs> he scares her before that. Wait, you gotta get out of here at five thirty. Yeah. No, no, no. We're good. We're good. Yeah. Oh, we we're have, good? I did have. Yeah, I did have my. Perfect. I have my daughters being picked up, so we're good. We okay. can we can continue cool. to. Uh, work here one of the things i want to talk about that i think jesse's going to have uh some inside knowledge on is you know i rumors being in the industry i've heard that lake mead has a huge uh influence you know levels on lake mead have a huge influence on you know the amount of water that is allowed to be taken uh by you know through the canal systems it's called paper credits paper credits mm -hmm. um now, I've also heard with that being said, Lake Mead has purposely been kept low for the reason that with the, the lower levels on Lake Mead, it limits the amount of water that can be taken out for agricultural use, which allows the cities more water to take in. Where, how does that play out? I, know I don't know that Jesse can comment on this, guy. A lot of his business yeah. comes from cities. It, it really does. Um, <laughs> and, and you're being re you're casting a wide, wide net with that scenario there. Um, so my understanding is Lake Mead is kept low, so to create supply and demand. Yeah, to create the supply. Well, and, and I think that it should to, to clarify. I don't know that it's kept low, but I think that the actionable items that could have taken place in order to rectify the situation in a more effective and exp expeditious manner have been withheld in order to propagate other means possibly now i don't because i don't think it's like okay let's just dump the water out in the mojave you know it's not quite that but um, no it, it's a business aspect of it they do sell what's called paper credits out of the lake Mead, which come out of the colorado river and which is what caused the drought in California where they over oversold their credits, basically. There was never any shortage of water there. They just oversold the amount that they could supply. It was the biggest drought issue over there. Now, with overselling happens when a developer does a 100-year water plan. Over there, it was a lot more agricultural for mm -hmm. California. Okay. is where they oversold their credits. In Arizona, yes, developer-driven is a lot of our problem. That's why we have the... Oh, the new act that was just uh, redone, the Arizona Water Act. Um, and that's what that paper ASU, what was that paper that ASU had, somebody from ASU had done? That it was talking about, I, it was talking about the credits, I've got to get more information on that, but 
Yeah, so in Arizona, we actually have a really good plan in place to deal with these types of shortages. The bigger problem we have is lobbyist group like Farm Aid, right? Like you see the commercials, you got Willie Nelson in the background singing. And he, it's, so let's not hate on Farm Aid. Not, I mean, Willie just said he stopped smoking weed. <laughs> well, he's got some okay. health issues. Yeah, he's got to quit smoking. I'm pretty sure he's still eating it or vaporizing it. I'm just saying, I'll never yeah. smoke weed with him again. Uh, <laughs> but no, I'll well, never say never, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Now, the bigger issue we have uh, is agriculture in Arizona because a lot of your large cities don't use groundwater. We use it minimally the best we can uh, around the metro area. However, if you start getting out east, out west, you do have large agricultural areas that the farm aid would like you to believe are local, your grandfather, farmer, out there growing crops and trying to make a living when in reality it's Saudi Arabian uh, alfalfa farmers that are they've used up the resources in their home country and are now out here growing miles and miles and miles of uh, alfalfa and using up groundwater to do so because they are covered by grandfathered in water laws where they're not monitored on how much groundwater they can pump and they have the capital to dig as low as they can as low as they can as big as they can they are literally pumping out groundwater systems to the point that they're drying up cities out there and every time a legislator tries to step in and stop this, you get lobbyist group involved. Like Farm Aid is the one that, that protects them and runs ads all over about how you're, you're, you're breaking up the American culture. And they got the nice John Deere guy from uh, Wisconsin up there farming his corn. Is that you that we saw in there? <laughs> well, I did grow up across the street from a farm and many times say that I was a farmer. So it could have been... I don't know that I've ever actually been on a tractor um, to farm. I've been on tractors to drive around county trunk highways with beer. Um, only when they were shut down, of course, and legally. But uh, I don't know that I've per, per se farmed. But yeah, I, I think. The, but I think the big point, you know, and what Jesse's alluding to here is that we have water rights that are. It's not as simple as a democratic vote. It's the the water situation, and especially the Colorado River given that this is a water right issue that dealt with a federal allocation, you know, the other part that Arizona has that is that, you know, as these levels are drawn down, there's mandated cuts that have to be made, you know, and so Arizona happens to be one of the weaker political places to be because if a drought happens and it becomes the level two, I think is what it would be, then Arizona has to lop off 10 20 percent then another one they take and in that first cut california doesn't actually take anything and so the real problem i think is that the problem isn't looked at from a macro level it's always looked at on a micro which says i should take all of this otherwise i'm just going to lose it and so everybody does and then everybody that can do that continues to do it and then you end up with you know, and, and whether it's a, a major drought, which I, I think that I'm, I'm an analyst and a statistician, so I say that we were definitely in, you know, I wouldn't go so far as to just simply address it as a paper drought because I look at it more of, statistically speaking, if this happens again for a couple of years, we actually are going to be in a very bad spot because all of the hydraulics that drive the way these systems operate and the energy that's used that has to move all of this are all based upon head differentials. And that goes and it cascades down the way as well as water quality issues and other things. So then you get into the treatment aspect of if you continue to draw it down and you end up with a more silty water production, that go, water that goes into your production facilities, then they can't handle it. Then suddenly 
those systems completely get overloaded and they have to have a ton of maintenance and you know so there's issues but the issues also could be if you were if there was one person who could simply pull strings and say okay this is equitable you know and the problem is is that that no longer exists nor maybe ever it did especially when it comes to a massive federal program like that but you know you think about it like this we live in the phoenix valley i mean we're in gilbert now at my lovely office and it's great in all reality the idea that we could sustain six plus million people here if it hadn't been that we dammed up the colorado river is absolutely asinine and so there's a lot of people that will scream about the federal government and they're trying to be intrusive and by no means am I saying this is Jesse you know because he may have his firearm on him and but the idea that you know you you stand upon the pedestal with which a federal program allows the entire existence of this place and you scream how it's there's this terrible intrusion and then you get into you know the agricultural producers and I think Jesse makes a very valid point that of um, multinational interests that become engaged and the way that we treat ownership rights is a little bit gray if you will in that should if if millions of people here could use this much water efficiently why is it that they that these guys should use this and that goes into of course federal agreements and then you then you end up in the treaty side because we have a large native american population that have a significant amount of water rights and they sell that back in many cases because ultimately they don't need it and there's there's a market for it but how does that how does that transfer into actual population and so you know when you're dealing with a large municipality and you get into the city of phoenix you get into these other cities they have a bit of a stacked deck in that things that seem like they would make perfect sense you actually can't manifest that because there's a number of other sort of um, additives to that equation that you can't control. Yeah, and if you go back to the the revision they just did on the the Water Act here in Arizona, the end solution after a year or so of the top guys... A lot of meetings about meetings. A lot of meetings about meetings. And their their end result to solve this issue of the drought coming forth was let's just pay the tribes more. And that literally was what came out of that that whole uh, think tank and the, the, the committees involved that was, we're just going to pay the tribes more to get more of the water from them. Right. And that's really what it came down to. Yeah, and, you know, and, and the water, you know, and translating that into how the energy market works, I mean, the, the price of water that uh, is paid by Palo Verde, the nuclear generating station, which is, is a very fascinating thing that out here in the desert we have the most efficient, it has an over 98% utilization rate meaning that the energy generated gets transferred. Now, of course, down the line, there's losses and line losses and things, but from a nuclear generating place um, or a nuclear generating station across the world, it's one of the most efficient, and it happens to be sitting out here in the middle of the desert utilizing wastewater, you know, reclaimed water, which is, I don't know, I think it's pretty awesome, but then again, I work in water and energy, so that might make me not that strange. But if you were to take and say, how much are they paying right now? Well, they're going to continuously be, this is an accelerated payment. They had to redo the negotiations as to how the SROG, which operates the 91st Avenue wastewater plant and sends the water. Well, there's an accelerated pricing structure that's going to take that price. I think it's probably around a hundred some dollars um, per acre foot now. And it's going to put that up in the next 
seven years to the three four hundred dollar range and so when you look at the metrics of how a plant operates eventually the water cost of that is going to become untenable yeah and so then you end up saying well how, what are we going to do we, we clearly need energy um and maybe there is the solar option maybe somehow there's going to be ways with which the technology of batteries are going to come along and microgrids will happen but in that short term you start to say if you start to price out the ability to utilize an asset that's billions and billions of dollars to build and the operating cost is you know that's where you get into your incremental cost of i could do this or this and this one already exists but now we're going to keep raising the prices until this gets priced out it becomes a very complex issue so what that that kind of leads to something that you know what because obviously there's waste of electrical energy that gets put out there because there's no storage means currently that i know of of you know electricity isn't something like water where you know you can have a a reclaim or you know a pond that it goes out to in the end it gets you know absorbed back in the ground you have credits that get you know absorbed out of that like it does in water where electricity if you send electricity out into the grid doesn't get used that electricity is essentially gone correct in essence you can't send more than is going to be used really Yeah, yeah so anything that is sent out needs to be used or else it becomes an issue more or less so so it can't it's not like water where you could just have a you could you could start pumps and then the pressure would just hold at the end systems until a tap is opened yeah to a degree the electrons are going to flow down and then they're going to go back and eventually if you keep sending too much and it's not used you're going to fry stuff right so in that theoretically could and that's where you were saying where battery technology you know got to the point where you can send a ton of electricity to this battery you know storage facility that could feed the city for you know 24 hours just on this alone and then once that starts gets drained down you could feed more power to that you know that kind of acts as a surge tank for distribution right well in, in in electrical the electrical world they have a thing called the duck curve and so it's a curve that looks like this and then the belly goes down and then it peaks up and it goes dips down like that and then it starts back over but at this duck curve the idea is is in the belly is where during the day you know you have your diurnal usage where you use a a lot of energy and then you know similar to water you know you have surges in the morning in the afternoon if you're at a treatment plant Um, and an energy has the same thing there's a certain flow of how much energy is used well the the big problem that electric utilities have is that during the day renewables go you know produce a ton of energy so the amount of energy that the plants have to produce is lessened, and then people are using less energy. And then as soon as people come off work, a ton of energy starts to get used. And at that time, that also happens to coincide with when renewable sources stop producing the energy, primarily solar. And so you end up with this huge whiplash of a hockey stick-esque, if you know, those in, those in CRM and sales planning know about the hockey stick, because it's, oh, it's December, let's draw a line straight up, and we're going to close the year out. But you get that every single day so that, the way that electric utilities are built is you have to have all of your power assets have to be able to deliver whatever that peak is. And so you have to have a portfolio of power plants that can supply this massive high amount, even though 90% of the time you don't need all of that. And that's where the economics comes into play and all of that as well, in that trying to map that duck curve. Now, if you're able to put battery storage in, 
then during the day when everything is producing you could keep a base load going you could store that and then during the time when that whiplash happens and the curve starts to go up to the duck's neck you could start utilizing some of those other distributed resources mm -hmm. and those batteries would be drained down and then at night when the power source goes down you could then run your power plants at a base amount to charge them and then also charge them more during the day during the solar aspect so eventually you know you're going to see battery technologies coming around we've had a number of attempts to put them in here APS has done some SRP is um, and there's tons of it happening in California but the the ability to do that and functionally have the efficiencies that would help make that a viable business opportunity, we're still a little ways away from that in the sense that you could still just take and pump water up to a tower and then bring it down through a microturbine and actually create a more efficient model than you could with the lithium batteries that exist. Well, that's another, asp another thing that I kind of, you know, I don't know, you kind of just sparked the uh, entire distribution system in the valley at least uh you know where it's flat is all ran off of pumps mm -hmm. why can't you put some you know generating facilities at those so the biggest theory behind that is that you're using pumps to move the water so you should be able to generate power off the biggest problem with that is the loss of energy pumps are not completely efficient not 100 percent efficient so you're only going to recoup, I believe it's, even with the best motors out there, you're like 80% efficient on a motor. So you're only going to recoup 80% of what you produce. So you're already at a net 20% loss. Well, then and that's actually 80% on both sides. So it ends yeah. up at 64%. 64, yeah. You'd end up 80 going up and then 80 coming down. And then you also have to recognize that the line losses, so when you're producing a megawatt or a gigawatt, say a gigawatt of power, by the time that reaches the end users, that's only not even half of that because you have to produce so much in order the line losses to sustain it. So the idea of how much you would produce to send down to here to then have that 64% losses, it becomes it, it, you know, not even viable. And then when you take the economics of what it costs plus the risk, I mean, we've already had the one situation where there was a fire up in, was that in Surprise that APS Peoria. had? Or Peoria? Yeah. yeah. And you know, you just have, you take that event and you take the same whiplash effect of something like nuclear, where we never had any major nuclear events in America, but one happens and we magnify that as that can now happen. Yeah. It's the same idea, you know, human psychology, we take and we attribute losses much more than gains. You know, if you have a 10% chance of dying and then you can go to a 15% chance of dying it's a lot different than if you had a 90% chance of living and an 85% chance of living. Because if you just look at it as the living or dying, just simply putting that simple attribution of what am I looking at, a very good outcome or a very bad outcome. So when you see a very bad event, you begin to ignore the denominator effect. You say if one person in a million could happen, like if I'm going to go in and get a surgery, every time you sign for going under anesthesia, I think it's like a one in 10,000 chance that you could just die. A lot of people just take and say, well, that's pretty unlikely, so whatever. Yeah. But if you start to think, I could actually just die, then it freaks you out, right? Mm -hmm. And so the same thing gets put into a lot of these, and therefore business decisions have to be made around, I mean, because the whole idea of, you know, 
what are corporations values well, how are business values and this goes into how are municipal services valued it's all valued not simply based on a net assets the way that the old school model of you know the you know a stock market you know you have stocks you have all of these physical assets and then you make x number of dollars in your cogs and so this all is attributed to this value the value is also just simply the marketing value meaning the paper idea of what am i and so if you suddenly get these one bad event and especially in the digital age with media and everything that happens on twitter and things like that you suddenly could go from being worth this to losing 30 percent of your value just because mm -hmm. something that's completely out of your control happens mm -hmm. just simply too. because it's bad pr yeah and that's a lot to do with the cancel culture of today and all right that. yeah but that gets into a whole other realm that I don't think we have time for about people's attention spans and the objective analysis of how you could actually look at events happening as well as, uh, you know, thinking about does this propensity warrant this type of a reaction? And I think that, not to mention hypocrisy that is so rampant in most individuals' daily lives because of the 24-hour news cycle and a memory of zero Meaning, <laughs> I could have said on this webcast great. last month that, you know, that I think that the color blue is the stupidest color ever and that I could show up today wearing blue and for the most part, everybody would think red on. Mm -hmm. Blue is okay now. Anyone yeah. that likes me, it's the halo effect. They go, yeah, Noah's great. Blue's cool now. Well, what do you say last month? Doesn't matter. That's just, that's nonsense. Where's your bathroom at? It's right out there. Okay. You guys keep going. We can take a we'll break. take a short break. Take a short break. Yeah, take a short break. Pause for the cause. Oh, can't yeah, camera is easy. Cameraing is a good thing that I think would go good uh, for the Westmac stuff we talked about. Yeah. Oh yeah, to bring the camera down there. Yeah, kind of yeah. bring more of the technology side of what's mm -hmm. being used out there. So what what tools and stuff do you use on a regular basis? Well, we, you know, we, we do, if we're doing site visits, I mean, we'll use things like Fluke meters, Exitec meters. We do Energy Star certifications. So we'll do lighting meters and then um, CO2 monitors, uh, temperature, relative humidity. But, you know, some, some of the things that meters we would use if we didn't sub it out you know, would be a lot of the things in the leak detection, like with the stuff that you guys do at CPM. I mean, we, you know, we work in consultation and we do a lot of, um, we do a lot of review work related to energy programs. And in doing that, there is site visits that are attributable to it, but we don't specifically spend a lot of time with the meters, we have I have sub consultants that do a lot of that, yeah. but I mean I could go into a more in depth list. But I mean it, it goes anywhere from, you know, kW meters, amperage, voltage. Then you can get into you know clean power, power factor, power factor correction, um, all the way into um, you know rotor balancing, and you'd have your vibration analysis. You have your depth testing of wells, uh, and any number of things similar to that. Uh, that more or less very, <clears throat> I don't want to say simple instruments, but what I always say is that we spend a lot of time <clears throat> in, in water, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> talking about, you know, issues that are very complex, but yet the, the mathematics and the data that leads to these types of equations is not that complex, and it's not much more advanced than what you would do in a given bachelor's program. And 
the interesting time we're in with analytics and more data, data aggregation, and as you mentioned before, Stephen, going into 5G, when you have less power required to be able to send the data and the ability to do that in a more efficient manner. Because one of the biggest issues you have with a lot of these meters now is you need a power supply. You need to be able to have that bandwidth of whatever technology is sending it and to be able to aggregate that. Um, and as the bandwidth on 5G and then ultimately into the 6G, which is something that Dr. Robert Ballard talked about in his speech about what they use in their undersea adventures, where you send, you know, 80 gigabits per second over, like it's nothing, um, meaning you could send, you know, for those of us that are next Netflix inclined, you could send a movie, a, a Blu-ray movie in a tenth of a second. So eventually that's, you know, all of this data is going to continuously get bigger and then you're going to compound the efficiency with which you can do it and the speed with which you can do it. And so as all of that comes into a culmination, you're going to find a whole other industry of things that are available and means with which you can actually fundamentally change your operations. And like I said, all of those tie back to very elementary equations, meaning all of these massive software packages that are elicited over the years and that individuals have paid for, whether it be in monitoring your system, distribution networks, treatment, it's all going to be something you could do yourself based on a, a cloud-based platform that you could run cloud computing to come into your data, not even move it, do the calculations, give you a look at what your system's doing, and do that in right now 15 minute intervals probably soon instantaneous now do you think the technology curve is going to plane out i would say that on a long enough timeline probably um in my lifetime no your Just, kids lifetime I, ca I can't even say with certainty based upon what i see as the effective way that we deal with data and computing it would but if you get up into doing more advanced computing techniques like quantum computing, then it would be Well, and then at that point, limitless. once quantum computing gets to the point to where it's, you know, your average Joe has quantum computing capabilities at their house, I mean, that's it literally your... your it, it takes the whole binary aspect out of it. You're no longer just having a bunch of capacitor switches that are yes-no, yes, and it... It's, it's yes-no, maybe, once yes, now it's no. You know, quantum. quantum. No, I, you're way over my head on this one right now. There's counting boxes, dead or alive. Uh, yeah. Schrodinger. I dropped that on Parker when we were out camping. Oh yeah, yeah, my, my son, eight-year-old son. Parker, it's, it's neither. It's it's in a completely neither alive yeah. nor dead until you open the box. Mm -hmm. If you shake it violently beforehand, though, you can guarantee it's dead. I have two cats at my house that could both be a proxy for this type of an experiment. <laughs> Every morning you wake up. And, it, and if they, they, if they stay dead. alive, you know, then that's someone else's problem. I think my wife has a dog like that. Every morning she should wake up wondering if that dog's alive or dead. Is that the wiry one? That is the wiry one, yeah, that barks <laughs> at its own shadow at three in the morning. And that dog has just gotten to the point to where it's like, oh, you're not you're not here to, to kill me. You're a friend. <laughs> yeah, hi. That's when it gets dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, then Zoe was doing some weird shit yesterday. Zoe's my, my white bulldog, yeah. Yeah, Zoe. She's always know, doing weird shit. She was like one paw batting at my leg. I'm like, what are you trying to... What are you she trying wanted to attention. Have you, have you messed with the St. Bernard yet, though, that I have? The big one? 
Not a whole lot. If she wants attention, she will take one paw, and she's big enough. She will pin your foot down. She just reaches up as you're walking by. So reach up and grab it by your ankle, and just slam your foot to the ground. Like, oh no, you're gonna pet me. I was reading this thing that was talking. It was like, you know, dog psychology or whatever. And they were talking about when their dog, when your dog puts their paw on you, it's the equivalent of you petting them. Like they don't have the motor skills to pet back and forth. So they're you pet them, so they're gonna pet you. Because my dog does that shit all the time, and I think it's more of a needy thing. But I always felt like it was never smacking me. Like, why did you stop? Yeah, yeah, yeah my dog Bruce will do it, and then he'll just crawl like up on top of me. And I think maybe he—I don't remember just laying on him, <laughs> primarily because he would get crushed. But you know, I have, I have a very large Saint Bernard that if you're gonna, she wants to be pet, you will pet her. Yeah. And every time I'm like hashtag me too, when she pins me down, it makes me pet her. Hashtag me too. Hashtag me too. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's a wrong podcast to dive into. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going to say no comment. You gotta get the beers out of your fridge before your boss sees them. Yeah, it's a good thing he is the boss. No, actually, well, technically, well, my wife is. Boss, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Which you know, as I figured, as a woman-owned business, I looked at it and said, since I'm since I'm controlled and she's the boss at home, I didn't see any reason. And if anybody was to question, well, you know, is she functionally really in charge? It's pretty obvious if you were to come. I'm like, come, come spend no, yeah, a few yeah, days yeah. with me. That's you'll see. Yeah, I've met your wife. You met mine. We both realize we are not kings in our kingdom. No. Yeah, yeah I get out of the kingdom. As soon as you get into the kingdom, you get put right back into your place. Uh-huh. Well, I've got as I've gotten older, not quite to forty yet. Um, I've noticed that I no longer even pretend. I'm like, yeah, I don't I, care anymore. I don't have any. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah. You know, with all the comments you've made today, I think I'm counting like six that you're not forty yet. <laughs> How are you dreading your fortieth birthday? No, no, it's it's more. Uh, <laughs> It is coming up, and it's the, this is the last stretch through the spring into summer when I will turn 40 that I can say that. And it's a very weird thing for me because 40, when I was younger, you know, I always would just kind of quantify life as like, well, yeah, that's still cool. But as far back as I go, 40 was old. Like, these are old dudes. And I, and I look at myself now, and I go, <clears throat> well, I'm not that. Like, I'm definitely not that old, crusty man. I'm well, you look back at guys at 40 years old when you were, like, 16, like, they got it figured right, out, right? Right, like, like, they've like, got, <laughs> like, they've got it handled, right? Like, these guys are really important, you know? And, yeah. But, yeah, but, but I think that ties in a bit to the what we were talking about here with people going into a job and trying to find different industries or avenues with which to pursue. I think the ideal of... You take your psychology and you say, well, I'm going to look at this person and that's that's where I want to go. But you don't actually understand the multitude of different turns or lucky breaks or things that have happened that have driven somebody it's very rare that you just are a person that like back in the 70s it would be i went to work at ford or gm or in wisconsin to be a paper plant and i did this and i started turning the wrenches and then 35 years later i retired with a million dollar pension and look at me go Uh, that economy doesn't exist anymore and so understanding the dynamics of how do you go from point A to point B and actually illuminating that is, uh, I think, of the utmost importance so that, especially with the tech revolution where kids wake up and think, okay, I'm going to become a podcaster and I'm going <laughs> to If I can make, if this could be my job, I would be more than happy. Now this is coming from a guy who that Noah himself was voted one of Phoenix's top 40 under 40. 
So I guess that that's actually a good he, answer. He was like one of the top of our gener or my generation out there yeah. in the industry and in the professional world. That he's still. But actually, that's a great that's a yeah. great point of why I talk about not being forty because I'm still there. I'm still he's in still it. a top forty under forty. So, yeah, as soon as I'm older, then it's like, well, you were, bro. Now you're just old. You're just old and dried up. Yeah, yeah. That was... He peaked in his thirties. Yeah, just say that. Yeah. <laughs> I'd almost go back to my twenties, but I'm still okay. You know. I feel like I'm a good, good guy. Until you start doing the Ninja Warrior stuff. Then, then right, the limitations yeah. of yeah. You know, well, and that was honestly, you know, I do, I did, I do powerlifting, and so the idea of I, I spent a lot of years, you know, doing massive deadlifts. How are your knees? Knees are fine. Really? Knees Back? are fine. I never had any issue. I've never torn a muscle. You had a good lifting coach. I did. Yeah. Dude, I'm so full of metal by this point in my life, and I'm younger than him. Like I'm just blown away right now. Like, We're just my gonna go I do have to say, I have an 80% tear in this rotator cuff, and that one came from trying to hand a sippy cup back to my son while I was driving. <laughs> and my second, now I've torn this, and there's this massive amalgamation of strangeness here where I believe the tendon is snapped. Yeah, I can see that on your bicep there where it's yeah. just completely... This is not decimated this is not right that is um, not normal no it's like it's from a horror movie and so on your I, I never once injured myself bench pressing over 600 pounds or deadlifting 700 plus but yet i try to play with my kids or hand them a sippy cup and i hurt myself so i think you know the true lesson here is you know you life's gonna get you one way or another or just Tell your kids it's too dangerous to give them things. Like I can't, I can't play with you guys. Like the old retired guy that throws his back out picking up a golf ball, right? Like, right. Yeah. Yeah. You could you can lay the best laid plans, and then it's it's because you don't. You know, when I would be lifting, it would be very methodical about I need to do at least a little bit of a warm up. I would know the feel of everything. Whereas my Ninja Warriors was my fat ass up there just flailing around. Like yeah, I can do that. I don't know where I thought that I could just twist from this over to this and that all of this is going to just play just ball in the way I, 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 I don't know i'm with him on it. like i watch ninja warrior with my son parker it's one of his favorite shows he's always like let's do this dad let's do this and i'm like oh i can do that yeah right yeah you right because you think like, why not yeah, yeah, yeah i can handle that and just swinging like i could do that yeah no no i would end up in the hospital real fast have you seen the one with terry cruz came out like a year I did ago not, no terry cruz is like uh he, it's essentially two people side to side. It's an obstacle course, and they race head to head. And it's like you know, deadlifting and all, or uh, you know, fitness. Whatever. Right there, my favorite one was Wipeout. I think that's the best one. Wipeout with yeah. the two Asian. Was it the Asian one? Oh yeah. 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 Well, it, Asia just does those things better because they're kind of. I mean, they're more fun loving in the sense of yeah, we can just beat the shit out of people, yeah. and it's kind of funny. And the Asian game shows. Yeah, they they my really son, go hard. He thought that shit was awesome. So like, Cornwalls now have the little large inflated bubbles that you can jump across now, inflatables. Mm-hmm. And he thought that shit was awesome. So he tried that one time and backflipped three times, and then did a handstand and landed on his head. Yeah, and realize that, that is a lot harder than it looks. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. and I laughed hysterically outside the. You know what? The thing. You know what's fun to go to, which is kind of like a mix of that Ninja Warrior stuff or those trampoline. Parts. No, dude, I won't. No, I ban my child. Now, if you mean fun places. to go to, where I go and I sit and my kids play. No, yeah, I love fun. going to those and realizing how easy I can hurt myself. No, look I realize at, I was look at the injury report on those places. Like the, the, oh, the statistics is oh, it's insane. Even of my son's friends, I mean, I. I could probably name 
which I won't for HIPAA reasons, uh, <laughs> at least six children within one arm's length of my son who have broken their arms, legs, feet, something on these trampolines. Now, it's the skateboard of these kids' days. Like, all my buddies, bro- we all broke our arms on skateboards and rollerblades. But I also attribute it a bit to, and this gets into the aggregation of data that, you know, now uh, somebody will go and be like, oh, I broke my arm. <clears throat> and then they're in like just, it's not even a full cast, it's just like that compression cast and then in like six weeks or not even six weeks like three weeks they're fine and i think that what we call a broken arm now is significantly less traumatic than what was a broken arm back in the day i feel like a lot of these broken arms nowadays were just blips on a shitty x-ray back in the day that our parents would have been like oh, the doctor's like you know drinking a scotch smoking a fucking cig like oh, i just said days. the f-bomb i'm sorry this is a podcast it's uh he's yeah. quite often yeah and yeah, he's like oh you know it's he could probably be okay i mean i've seen these before and by seeing these before he means he doesn't want to spend the it's time it's not a compound right. fracture and so it's like this is all good <laughs> and so then there you go you now just have a broken arm so i don't i don't know whether to attribute this to more you know a, a, a more careful examination of what a broken arm is you know and that goes you know to you can touch on a lot of just different subjects with this with you know as technology increases and di- ease of diagnostics increases you're getting a lot more people diagnosed with with mental like you know going to you know autism hits home for my family mm-hmm. i have a sister that's autistic when i remember growing up the you know, the, the likelihood of being diagnosed autism, it was like 1 in 13,000. Well, yeah, but they had ADHD was every other fucking kid back then, though. Well, that's yeah. just because we yeah. got good speed. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Well, now it's 1 in 300. 1 in 300 kids are going to be diagnosed with autism. Mm-hmm. With that being said... I've always a, been a firm... I mean... There's a lot more... They you have a lot of doctors out there that are they're, they're specialists, right? And... and the saying always is, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail, right? If you're a surgeon, everything needs surgery. It's true. Yeah. And, and trust me, in my generation, autism is your generation. ADHD was my generation, where every freaking kid out there had ADHD. If you acted up in class or a little shit, you, you had ADHD. You got put on medication. Yeah, you got put on speed. My family was heavily involved with it. I mean, <laughs> not speed, ADHD. Thank you, Noah. My family was also very involved in trade. <laughs> Speaking of trades. North Dakota, we're on it. Yeah. 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 Transmission and distribution networks. <laughs> no, it was my childhood. I mean, every freaking kid I knew that um, they all had ADHD, man. And they, they give them all this. Back then, it was still kind of experimental medication. Just I remember, Ritalin, yeah. Yeah, I remember my brother. Uh, my younger brother, he was really heavily medicated on this stuff, and it made him sick all the freaking time, like to the point that he won't take Advil these days. He's got so scared as a child of taking medicine because it made him so sick. And so it's, you know, I, I don't want to downplay what your family went through, Stephen, with your autism, autistic sister, but it seems to be a lot of times that that's their go-to now. They're, they have Asperger's or something like that. Well, it's, it's not because it's, it, they've expanded it to the spectrum. Right. I, mean, I think autism autism used to be designated as, you know, like, here, you, you have to be this far down to make it truly autistic. And now it's kind of saying, well, no, there's a number of elements in it. But, uh, you know, I, I, I think that it's, it's, it's good in the sense, but I, I actually go the other way of what Jesse said, and I use a, you know, Hunter S. Thompson line of, I'm not going to advocate for drug use, but it's always worked very well for me. 
Legal drug use, by the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, legal. That's the key phrase. Legal drug prescribed. Always, yeah. always prescribed. And I guess I shouldn't say drug. I should say medication. Yes, there's a fine line there. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, these days it seems like every friend I have on Facebook or social media has a child that is autistic on the spectrum. Well, it's not even that. It's any ailments. You know, growth disorders. You know, uh, mental disorders. Uh, you know, bone deficiencies. There's which I think, I think it's a, you know, between a rock and a hard place of, you know, ability to diagnose and actual, you have one extreme and the next where somebody's barely writing on that and, you know, gets diagnosed with it, which, you know, as you said, 10 years ago when the technology wasn't there, 20 years ago when the technology wasn't there, it wouldn't have been diagnosed that. Now you have technology along with, you know, the quickness to diagnose. Same thing with, you know, you can you relate it back to any medical stuff. So pain pills, you know, how quick, recently it's it's narrowed down, but how quick are they to prescribe pain pills? Oh, dude. Well, I lived in Florida in the early 2000s. And so if anyone knows that, <laughs> Broward County prescribed. Broward County had 90% of the Oxycontin that I came also, out of the country was out of I had county. a doctor back, I mean, back in the day, actually back in the day now, I was in my mid-20s. I played some uh, semi-pro football. And a guy took my knee out, and I completely decimated my leg. So I had a serious injury. But uh, I remember my doctor back then prescribed me 90 days worth of Oxycontin <laughs> and Vicodin at the mm-hmm. same time. To be all filled at once. I had a full pill bottle mm-hmm. of Oxycontin and Vicodin that made for a great next 30 days to run out of a 90-day supply. Uh, until he had horrible 60 days yeah, after. Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, recovery's pretty bad. I want to thank my she wife. I was train spotting. Yeah. It's called dope sick. <laughs> and when she realized that I was hallucinating because I was yelling because my mom had brought me soup, and she's like, Your mom lives three states over. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, but I, I, I think there's, there's, a, there's a huge element of that, and that's that, that goes into the, the data side of things. Like, the more you know, the more you can do this, but then are you setting an anchor point for, you know, it's the same theory of, if you know, you guys in sales where you go in, you want to set the anchor point. What do you here. mean you guys? You sales guys. I'm, a cons- you're a consultant. I'm just some consultant. You're, in, you're sales. I'm just a helper. I just help. You're right. I'm sorry. I've taken my high hat off and I'm setting it down. Okay. But the idea is, you know, you set an anchor point to kind of try to set what the value of this is. And do you do in in antithesis of an inverse anchor point to saying if you have this I'm, I'm autistic I'm on the spectrum and then you start to help is that help actually helping or are you now teaching this individual I have a disability I have these limitations and, I, and I'm not saying that that's every case but what I'm saying is mm-hmm. as the propensity with which to diagnose these and I don't think I don't think we've gone off of how much we diagnose ADD I think what we finally should really come to terms with is the fundamental way with which we try to execute school in this country or in the world for that matter is not within the nature of what human genome allows for learning for all. We teach in one method, one format, and and we all learn in different ways. I myself learn best Mm -hmm. hands-on. You give it to me, you put it in front of me, let me mess with it. I learn a lot more that way. And it's like the apprenticeships. It's going into these types of trades that are existing. The amount that you can learn theoretical knowledge that you can learn in 
a four-year college degree, of course, is very valuable, and I'm very much in favor of education. But it's like I, I went, I took several years of Spanish. But when I did a senior design project where I spent several weeks in the Dominican Republic, I learned more about speaking Spanish during that time than I did in all of the years of sitting in a Spanish class going, yo soy amigo en el baño. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I knew almost nothing. And then you actually immerse yourself in it and you, you have a functional ability to learn a ton more. And so I think that the, the attribution of how you actually can set those goals and find out what you like to do actually if you like building things go find a place where you build them if if you like coding you know and it's like video games and things that people like to play this is a it, it, it's silly but ultimately eventually factories will be run similar to the way that video games are run because you have very binary outputs and the machine will even be telling you you'll have cobots that'll say oh i can play with this cobot today and i'm going to teach you how to do this when you have, like, I know, like, the space shuttle, NASA space shuttle, I mean, those pilots that are flying out there, yeah, I mean, if, if shit hit the fan, they could fly stuff. But the computer does all the calculations. They, the calculation is put into it to get it to where it needs to go, but the computer does all the calculations to where if the calculations the user put into it are wrong, the computer will say, no, that doesn't work. Let's change it to this. Well, what does it say? I mean, the original spaceships, they say, had less technology in them than our microwave does today. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's insane. They were in a tin can. It was a little bomb yeah. that would go off <laughs> and propel them up, yeah. hopefully straight. Yeah. Yeah, shout out to them. Dang. But going back to... That's the, balls. I just got to say. Right now. You go, you know what? Yeah. No one's ever done this. I'll get in there. Yeah. I'm afraid I light my, I go and light my grill some days, and I'm like, shit, this could be a little dangerous, man. Well, I remember <laughs> what I used to do is, you know, my electric starter didn't work on my grill. So, you know, to hold a tiny lighter down there and wait for the propane to get big enough to, you know, light the grill, you know, and take you five minutes. Oh, last time we were camping, I saw you burn every hair off yeah. your arm while you were camping. If your grill. propane take takes five minutes to start releasing gas, <laughs> you may want to go get a new tank. God, the key is... Shut the lid. Turn it on. The little air holes, oxygen holes on the bottom, hold the lighter right there. If it blows out, you might send your thumb. Or you might send your grill sky high. Hey. <laughs> Two things are going to happen. I'm not going to advocate for opening no. the grates, but I happen to have <laughs> a broken... No OSHA here. Not yeah. at home. Yeah. yeah. I have a broken button right now, and I, I just lift the grate, and I light it. And now as soon as I turn it on... Dirty. Well, I don't get the hands dirty. I have, I have tons of implements like kids... Garden tools. No, I'm saying my kids have toys laying everywhere. So there's always something I can use to lift that. It's not a problem. No. Yeah, yeah, we'll go with that. I'm yeah. not a propane guy. That's why I go purely charcoal. All right. Well, and I, my, I don't no have propane either. You, you can use lighter fluid. No. I, I Look, use I use natural charcoal. gas. I have a line that goes directly to my grill. So I, See, never I couldn't do that because too many times on barbecue, and I thought about putting the natural gas in line in yet. But I pass out drunk quite often when I'm barbecuing. And that's a lot of gas to go through. That's why you do the, the eight-hour slow cooking. Well, so it, you can pass out. I do it with my charcoal. Up. By the though, time yeah. you wake up, you're good to really, go. Really, the only, time, I'm re only real reason I'm good at brisket on my smoker is I like drinking at 5 a.m. in the morning. And it gives you a reason to without sounding like an alcoholic. True. you got to watch. And charcoal, I, I do have to say, in certain circles, that still sounds very alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here it sounds perfectly rational. But, uh, yeah, I, and not and a I, true statement, by the way. I, I do have to point out that I did one time leave... It was last year, the year before, for Thanksgiving, I was warming the turkey on my grill, so I had it on low. And 
at least five days, maybe a full week later, I went outside and uh, my grill just felt warm. <laughs> so I can say that the fear that Jesse has is real, and I actually experienced it by leaving my grill on for what turned out to be about a week. Luckily, it was on low, and it was only the far right well, burner. My charcoal burns out. Like natural gas, not that expensive. Uh-huh. But ultimately, I mean, am I really much more than my water heater? Come on, this is totally you know, it's perfect. I wouldn't, not by no means on this podcast for OSHA reasons. I am not advocating burning natural gas outside. OSHA doesn't listen to this. I'm not big enough. Yeah. That's why you can say Not yet, but like I said, on the digital platform. Not the most energy efficient idea he's ever had. Exactly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's better. Well, and I do have to say that my, my practice, what I preach, is not that good because I do keep my house temperature set points significantly lower than that that I would recommend for most people. Why do you leave your house set at the summer? Not. I'm actually really embarrassed to say. Yeah, my 72. Wow. In the summer? Really? That warm? That (laughs) I have my house at 80. Dude, I'm like 65. College life. If I I even if I I live hot, man. When I moved down here, I I stayed with your uncle Wisconsin too. And he he would have it at 80. I like the cold. And it was at 80, and I would just lay in bed and just sweat. Yeah, you couldn't sleep at all. No, just sweating, just fat sweat. I mean, it's just not. It's just not a pretty picture. At least you you're know. losing weight. Uh, that didn't. That really? God, I'd be a lot fatter then. That's that's a scary. <laughs> that's a scary thought. Wow. Yeah. Well. Okay. So there's a reason I work a lot in the summer because my wife, she, she's real big in the. Oh, what is that? Where you you run your house at like fifty degrees super at night? Cooling. Super cool, super cool. Yeah. Yes. So I would love your input here on this note yeah. because my wife's a big advocate of it. Mainly, so my power bill went down like two hundred bucks. For people that don't understand super cooling or pre cooling, mm-hmm. what is it? So super cooling basically is you cool your house down and burn all your energy at night when the atmospheric temperature is a lot lower. So we'll set it at like fifty degrees. Throughout the night. So you freeze your house during the night, shut everything down in the morning, and then when the heat of the day comes in, you live off that residual cool in the house, and you let your house warm up throughout the day, so you turn your AC off during the day, which is also the time that APS is charging you the most your peak your power. Your so peak between rate. 12 yeah. and 7 for so me. So between 12 and 7, my house is a fucking sauna at like 75, but uh, to me, that's a sauna. So what I, what I had done on this is, you know... Seven o'clock came on. I set the house to sixty degrees. Yeah, had the house run a si- at seven sixty degrees. Yeah, yeah, seven o'clock at night, sixty degrees all the way until twelve o'clock when peak rates kicked on, and then my AC mm-hmm. would kick off, and I had my AC set to I think it was like eighty five. So, so you would run it overnight to pre-cool? I would run it overnight to pre-cool. But we did so the same thing. It was I think it was seven at night till like six in the morning. It was where my APS rates would change. And you would just cool the living piss out of your well, I guess what I would say is, you. I don't know that I would want to be laying in that. Wouldn't you want to just start it at it, like honestly, 3 a.m.? Honestly, it's 112 out outside. That's it's true. not going to get to safety. Just your yeah, AC and my AC was time. on its last limp. So I was trying to get the home warranty, you know, burn out my AC. <laughs> I, can tell you, I can tell you definitively home warranties are nothing more than when you win a prize at Chuck E. Cheese. And then you go up there and you realize that you spent $80 to get a $3 box of shit. So my, yes. my little snake I could have that went back and forth was not worth the $100 I spent on the... No, because I had a home warranty. Game. Well, okay. Now, granted, this is also my personal perspective, but I had a home warranty. So my pool pump went out, and then they came out and were like, yeah, take care of it, bro. I'm like, right on. Oh, well, you know, you have to do a variable pump, and your current pump was only a single speed. 
So we won't pay you for that. So they gave me like $200 for the 1200 that it costs to put in a new one. <laughs> and then the beauty was is that my pump dude, my pool guy, who would come and do my pool service, and he was like, well, I could have gotten that for like $900. So in other words, the actual net cost of it all <laughs> was because I'm on a warranty, I have to use the guy they send me, and the guy mm -hmm. they send me has his prices that just so happened to be exorbitantly higher by at least the cost of what I could get from them. Mm -hmm. um, then so I had it's, an. It's like a furniture yeah. warehouse doing a fifty percent off sale. That always really, going out of business. Yeah, yeah. yeah, always going out of business. How are they still? You were going out of business yeah. eight years ago, bro. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if only you actually left town. We're slashing prices to exactly what they should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, J.C. Penney actually tried that. They tried to they eliminate did. the coupons, mm -hmm. and you know, the CEO said, "You know what? We're done. We're just going to give good prices, and nobody bought anything because people need to believe they're getting a deal." Yeah, it's another. Especially in today's culture, when you can research literally everything out there. Amazon, so super cooling. Oh, I'll let you. No, go ahead. Beer. Get your beer. So think about super cooling. What well, super cooling? It, it. I guess I could just interject quickly. It goes back to that thought of the duck curve. It's simply saying that pre-cooling means when you would start out the ducks here, you got the ducks ass. So that's the beginning of the day when you start to use the peak energy. Then it goes down during the sun time. Then it goes back up. So the pre-cooling says, don't use your cooling here in the morning or here in the afternoon. Now, granted, pre-cooling is different. Different utilities have different peak times. And it's also different peak times at different part of the year. During the summer, that's going to be at the hottest part of the day. Other times, it could be in the morning. And some yeah, and it's something like 12 cents a kilowatt hour during the peak of the day. Right. And during off-peak, it's like 2 cents a kilowatt hour. Right. And so the idea is very simply, it's just simply saying... You, you could buy this, you know, you could use three kilowatt hours that would equivalent to the one, and since it's so cheap right now, it works out. So it's not like pre-cooling pre doesn't actually do anything from an efficiency standpoint. It's a load shifting. So you're just shifting the load over and then helping yourself ride it out. But I think, personally, if I start to set my AC to 60 degrees and then I let it ramp its way back up to 70, sooner or later... It more to... Well, sooner or later, my fat ass is going to get accustomed to 60 degrees, which means that then by the time I get back to where I used to be accustomed to the 72 to 75, where I'm aiming to be at during that peak, is going to be a bad thing because I'm going to start sweating. I'm going to be out at well, work. Well, that's you know, what happens in my house, and I get yelled at because yeah. about four in the afternoon, I sneak over to the thermostat and turn on to 75 because I'm just dying. I would slap your hand. But she yeah. tries. Yeah, trust me. Yeah. <laughs> when I had my roommates... This last year at my house, they would set the house to like 70 degrees. Sleeping in 70 degrees, I absolutely love it. Ideal. Problem is, they wouldn't turn it back up in the day. So my, you know, $120 electric bill would be 300 bucks because we just heated 70 degrees through 115 degrees outside. Well, to be fair, when we start, before we started doing this, I had like six, $700 electric bills in the summer. Like, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we, stay away from those. we have some rather large ones, yeah. Yeah, I also have a three thousand square foot house. Yeah, it was a thousand. Yeah. Which I mean, divided by four roommates isn't that much. So. <laughs> I love it. Roommates. I have I have five roommates. Yeah. It still costs me a lot. You don't want to pay. <laughs> <laughs> Technically, I have three roommates. But God, I think back anything. to you know when I was in college, and I'm thinking, you know, I remember we rented this house, and then there was this busted ass attic upstairs that the door didn't have a handle on it and they had it locked but all we did was just pop the hinges off and we found this 
two ratty ass bedrooms up to go back to the uh, horror movies of the eighties. Yeah. So then we just said, "Well, we've seen we, this plot. We got room for two more roommates." And then I remember the landlord actually came by once and was had to check the place out, and so we had to put the door back on and reseal <laughs> it. And we're like, "Oh yeah, well, nobody goes up there. That's nothing." Even though there was like Anne Frank up there. How was Anne Frank as a roommate? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So so I'm you know well versed in that splitting the bills. But even then, I will say. The ability to get that $12 that each of them owed me was infinitely harder than just, you know, what I deal Taking with Taking care now. of it yourself. Yeah. Because, boy, you know, when it's like, hey, guys, all right, we got a bill. Everybody owes $14. Oh, hey, can I, like, yeah, I'll just, I'll get you back. Oh, yeah, that's cool, man. And then he's out at, you know, Molly McGuire's drinking the $5 all you can swill and pissing himself then, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, you thought you had no cash, bro. Right on. Well, that's why he's at Molly McSwills. He has no cash. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's drinking PBR. <laughs> PBR, yeah, we'd have those beer trays. PBR's coming back. It's a hipster thing. Man. I know, but... I tried it, trust me, I tried it a couple of years ago and drank, like, I did my day drinking thing with it, fishing with a buddy, and... It's, it's the next day I felt like absolutely... Tastes worse than Coors Light, it makes you feel worse than oh, Budweiser. Oh, it's terrible. And it's more expensive than both of them combined. Yeah. Like, if you were to go to a bar and get PBR, you're spending six bucks a, a glass. That well, a let's just, you know, this is it. Let's think it out. I have a daughter who's a teenager. Uh oh. And the new thing, American Eagle jeans, okay? First of all, I want to point out thing, to the all the listeners American Eagle jeans are awesome. And any dudes that don't understand this, you, you actually. Right what are you wearing right now? These are American Look at this. They actually stretch. stretch. Stretchy jeans are yeah. game For fat dudes, when you sit down, a lot of things that people don't understand about us fat dudes, when you sit down, your waist goes up at least four to six inches. <laughs> He's not wrong. When I'm yeah. standing, it's no. all good. Then I sit down. And then, so when I would wear conventional jeans, there would be no flex. So I would do like this. I would be getting knee injuries practically when I'm trying <laughs> to just sit. And then my big fat legs, I'm like, but these jeans, it's amazing. But what I'm really talking about here is now they take and they rip the shit out of them for you. Okay. My daughter's like, oh, look at these jeans. They're so sweet. And they're just ripped all to shit. Now, I used to do concrete work, as we talked about earlier. And my jeans would get ripped to shit. And I'd be like, damn it. I gotta get now I'm going to get hot tar on my legs. So this sucks. <laughs> so I would try to fix that. Sometimes with staples or some of the tar. I would just say, oh, there's tar on it. Let me just roll, it, roll all those strings together. And the tar will amalgamate into a nice holder. But nonetheless, we're paying more now for ripped-ass jeans. And I'm going, wow. Then it got even worse. Now they make shorts, and they make shorts that are this long. That are ripped. Six long. inches, and they're all ripped to shit. Pockets are hanging out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, what? You're paying money for this garbage? It's the same thing as PBR. There's no way you would you would take me. If, when I was a kid, we'd get, we'd get Red Dog 30-packs or uh, Ham's beer chest. headache right now thinking about that. And we would always, of course, buy the ice. We'd be like, oh, that's... That's that's the uh, Schlitz ice, so oh, it's yeah. got the extra like two percent alcohol in it. So of course you'd buy that because it's like what? I, <laughs> clearly you need it. Old Steel Reserve back in the day. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are those Mickey's? Get the grenade. Oh yeah, the grenade. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. But you know, so but the idea that I would buy this and now suddenly it's become in vogue of oh I'm gonna drink the PBR. It isn't like the flavor suddenly got better or they changed that recipe. No, no. it's very simply that it got hip. Just it like tastes like hot dog water to me. Personally. Ripped jeans don't make sense to me. To me, it's like if you want ripped jeans, just buy jeans and then go bust your ass for a while. Eventually, they're going to rip, <laughs> and then you can wander around with ripped jeans. 
You know, plus you have a handful of cash. I don't know. Yeah. I love your comparison. Back to when I was ripped from ripped yeah. jeans to PBR. If but, you want a pair of ripped jeans, be an operator, okay? Because sodium hypochlorite chlorine mm-hmm. will rip right through jeans. Like, yeah. They will put a hole in about a nanosecond in well, a pair of jeans. And when you do wall forms and you have you have the metal. Uh, the little you, the angle irons that are like yeah you put it through the forms and then you put the pins in then you take the forms off and you still have those two inch holders holding it out and anyone that does concrete work I'm embarrassed that I don't know the name of those but shut up I'm an engineer <laughs> they will rip the hell out <laughs> of your jeans any given time you're walking by and suddenly you hit it and you cut your leg you're like great now my jeans are ripped and I'm bleeding and there's tar leaking into there and then you know my bosses would be like well the tar you got to wash your hands. I'm like, well, what do I use? We got some of that nice orange soap or some of this good OSHA type shit. No, just use some of that diesel gas. Oh, yeah. yeah. So then my hands that are all cut to hell, I'd be washing with that. And all the, you know, all of the lye from the concrete is eating the skin and I'm washing my hands with diesel. So, I, you know, yeah, I always do. Take... know I runs a podcast about cancer. I'm not really yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, no. It's hard to figure out the attribution. Yeah, yeah, sure where that came from. You know, I actually got in a fight with my, my 20-year-old daughter. Not a fight, just a discussion. Where I was walking around the house one day in my boxer briefs, right? Speaking about short shorts. My boxer briefs, they're longer than normal. I like the nice long ones, you know, they come like just a couple inches above your knees. Do you have to worry about sitting down in them because stuff hangs out of them? No, no, no. They're boxer briefs. They're not not boxers, right? That was a very fast. No, there's no problem with that whatsoever. Standard white boy issue. I'll let that hang. Standard white boy issue here. I am Irish, yes. She threw a feel like, Dad, you got to put a pair of shorts on, a pair of pants, or something. And she's wearing a pair of shorts. Like I stood next to her and go, Princess, my briefs are three inches longer than your shorts right now, okay? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, well, you yeah, got yeah. an inch and a half hanging down, so it should be an inch and a half longer. I'm not sure how that actually uh, associates, but no, yeah. it doesn't work that way. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to leave a no comment on that. Yeah. One. yeah, yeah. I that was know. not the point of discussion there, Stephen. But as it turns out, I actually... I'm a big fan of the Duluth Trading Company boxer briefs. I am, yeah. Um, so am I. Which I, I swore off that I would never spend money on underwear because I was like, this is they would like to sponsor this podcast? Yeah. So I'm more than willing to talk you know, about that. I've never, I've never seen those or worn them, so I can't really... I'm not actually going to show you. Um, but me undies, I have worn those, and I would love to have them as a sponsor on here. Me undies, you can also get matching underwear with your lady. That's what you're into. But they are softer than shit. Not into that. that Matching underwear. Like, so what do you do? You just sit in your underwear with your lady? I don't... Yeah, you don't? Remember your 20s where you had kids and you do shit like that? (laughs) I walk around my underwear I just don't know. Like, if I had underwear on and then my wife was wearing it, I'd be like, right on. Yeah. Why why are we matching? (laughs) Like, why are you in your underwear? It makes perfect sense why I am. Of course (laughs) I'm in my underwear. I just got home or I just got up. That's what I do. I get in my underwear and I wander around. <laughs> the shirtless wonder. You know, we used to call when I was a kid. We'd call my dad underwear man because he'd come walking up, but he'd go tidy whitey. He'd be oh. coming out with that. You know, that. I'm old glad school. those aren't a thing anymore. I don't even know. I, you know, I, I guess I get it, but he'd just come out in his tidy whiteies. I'm like, right on. Hey, Dad. Good morning. Fruit of the loom here, huh? <laughs> you know, at least mine have some cool patterns on it, or you know, fun animals or other They're shapes. Shit stained white. Right. Brown. Right. You know, but mom was good at keeping the laundry clean, so you know there was a lot of <laughs> there was a lot of good bleaching and soap that could happen. But I don't know, the tidy whitey's just that's just a lot of business. It just seems so restrictive on the thighs. I can't deal with that. I can't handle this, the the tightness. You got that mm-hmm. like wedgie that's and that happening. chafing, and ah, I just yeah. it's just too much for me. I need a good you know. I like I like the support of a brief. 
but the coverage of a boxer. No, that's what I'm about. That's a good ad right there. Brought to you by... Yeah, brought to you by the loop training. (laughs) (laughs) You got any good stories about you two? But Noah and I? Yeah. Oh, man. You've told me stories. My famous story that I have of Noah and I, actually. How'd you guys meet? Uh, on the energy side. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was an operator. I thought you were going to say the internet. I thought no. it was a dating app or something. <laughs> well, we were both in this chat room. It was a grinder right? scenario. Uh, <laughs> 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 no, no, actually, we met because I was an operator, and he took over um, running the energy efficiency rebate program. Mm-hmm. For uh, for APS and Siemens, and so he started. I was his client back in the day. That's how we met. He, we worked together on several projects together. It was successful, but uh, it's funny. The the main story I have with Noah, I tell a lot of times now. I actually told it today <laughs> during an AZ Water board meeting. Uh-oh. Um, <laughs> was actually at the the re- leadership retreat him and I went to back in July, which is it just happens to be my birthday weekend every year for some reason. We both. I serve on the board of AZ Water. Was this this last year? This last year, yeah. So no, during your, while you were golfing. Before I was golfing. Okay. Yeah. Before I went golfing, Noah is. Uh, he serves on one of the committees and one of our committee chairs. The uh, resiliency. Yeah. And just got changed. Yeah. yeah and, but I'm also the chair yeah. of the environmental council, which was yeah. the yeah. So I serve on the board of directors, and and we we go to a, a leadership retreat every year up in Flagstaff at a, a little hotel resort slash thing up there, and there isn't jack shit to do there. So we do meetings all for like 12 hours a day. There's a dinner and there's a bar on site. I mean, you can go into town if you want, but it's an Uber drive and you might as well just drink at the bar. So Noah and I finish up dinner and we go to, we go to the bar and clients are there. So we're doing our thing, right? You know, paying for bar tabs. We're having drinks and about, I don't know, like 10 o'clock at night. We've been there since maybe seven. The bartender looks over at us and she goes, listen, I'm not going to lie. Like, I'm pretty fucking impressed right now. And we're like, what? She goes, no, the, no. The fact that you're still conscious and holding a conversation is impressive, based off your bar tab. <laughs> she then proceeds to bring out a print off of our receipt and the bottles we've drank yeah. of bourbon. And yeah, we yeah, were doing yeah. the uh, was it the Manhattan? Manhattan, yeah. we were doing, yeah. yeah. She goes, no, most I would have cut most people off five drinks ago, but like the two of you are just fine. Like you're still holding, you're not. Yeah, well, and I, of course, don't drink heavily. I just dump them out. I, I carry around the empty cup. My mom taught me that. The tonic waters. Yeah, yeah, give me the tonic water. But yeah, we did, yeah, we did have a few. We did all right that night, yeah. Yeah, that was... I've never had a bartender tell me they were impressed by our ability, though. The fact that we were still holding conversations and acting sober. I get that She didn't cut us off, either. Though. She no. served us a whole other no. next bottle. And, yeah, <laughs> she, um, she got them coming, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's... Uh, there was a, the year before. I think the leadership retreat was in Tucson. That was two years before. Two that. years before, yeah. I remember because that was, that was yeah. the year before. I missed because I was uh, out of town. But the year before then, I remember in Tucson with the the prickly pear. Yes, whatever. Yeah, and yeah. we were we were doing some rather heavy drinking then, and uh, actually were able to. Somebody else had volunteered to take that tab, which I was gra- glad for. Yeah, I knew the magnitude of it. Um, but then I remember this is this is the great this is the greatest part. Yeah. You know, at this yeah. time Jesse and I, you know, I didn't for whatever reason every time I, I I looked I didn't have his cell phone number. So I was I went back to my room and I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh, I'm <laughs> you ever give your number out to Grinder? Right. Well, you know, but it, but it, I, I was pinging him on Grinder and I couldn't get him. You know. But, <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, and he was, I knew he was in his room and his wife was there, and, and I'm like, I know he's got a cooler, you know, so I, so I, I so I'm emailing him, I'm, you know, I'm like, you yeah. I'm like, and, I, and I'm just picturing the next day, Jesse getting these emails, probably several uh-huh. of them, like, hey man, just sitting here, just figured I'd see what you're up to. Yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, yeah I might have a drink or two, but whatever, you know, it's no so big yeah, deal. Yeah, you want to get together, you got any beer in your room? It's like, like 1.30 a.m., I'm like, yeah. yeah, just sitting here, just figured I'd check in, yeah, <laughs> no big deal. Of course, I was down with my wife, so I was away from the kids, so at 1 a.m. after the bar closed, I wasn't checking email. Yeah. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I see still, I still, that's a famous story I tell about the, the leadership retreat last year about a bartender saying, yeah, I'm actually pretty fucking impressed. Like, I'm not going to lie. She actually found me the next morning. She was in for doing something, meeting or something. We were up like nine in the morning, and she came over, and I was walking to the lobby, and she's like, "Oh, oh, there you are. Hey, how are you feeling today?" I was like, oh, "I'm fine. Well, what's up?" Yeah, yeah. you know, <laughs> I realized when we were in Payson not to try to keep up, and I that was the first time <laughs> that I've been with you where I've been in the situation where it's like, you know what, I'm not going to keep up, and you kept saying, "Hey, man, I'm like three beers ahead of you." It's like, okay. <laughs> hey, man, I'm seven beers ahead of you. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. can still function. <laughs> Yeah, you got you you got to know your limits. Well, you the know? problem is, is the first time I went out with Jesse, happened to be my first actual like work. Oh, conference. you're talking about Denver? Now, oh, yeah. yeah. Mm. Now it's Denver. Yeah. So I go out with Jesse. Well, the first night wasn't too bad. First night, you know, uh, one of the other people we were with got a little bit too drunk, and Jesse had to take him back to the hotel. Mm-hmm. And so I went out. It's and, funny when I'm the responsible one, right? right? Like, yeah. yeah. It's a very, it's an amazing role that I've played many times, but <laughs> yeah. I don't quite understand. Yeah. So, yeah. so I ended up, that's actually, you know, I relate that pretty heavily to how I am where I am now with this job. Because I went out with his boss afterwards and, uh, you know, got talking to him. But the next night, we decided to go out and <laughs> I don't even know what all the fuck we did. We went to... <laughs> All I know is... Hospitality events, let's put it that way. Yeah, all I know is we did Coyote Ugly, Mm. dancing with this girl that I felt bad for. Yeah, you weren't even, like, hitting on her. Nothing like that. It was pure, like, her brother was with her, and, like, it was a a Coyote Ugly. So, country music playing. It's a one dance I know how to do, so I'm like, hey, you know, I asked her brother. I was like, do you care if I I ask your sister to dance? He's like, no, go ahead. You know, start dancing with sister. Get done. I am so white girl wasted. This is on a second story of a some bar- outdoor mall. Yeah, some that, outdoor yeah. like mall area. Start walking down the stairs. Well, first off, stepping back a little bit, my girlfriend called me, and so I step outside, go to carry my drink outside. The the bouncer took my drink away and said, "Oh, you can't take that out here." So I'm trying to like steal drinks, whatever. <laughs> End up going back in, grab my drink from the bouncer, dance with her, whatever. We go to leave. And I go to, like, my feet just aren't working anymore, so I start to fall down the stairs, and Jesse's, you know, godlike hand grabbed my shoulder. <laughs> yes. and I still have quick reflexes. Yes. When me, me falling down the steps. I saw it happen. I was looking at you when it happened. He was coming down the stairs, and he went to step, and his boot, like, didn't quite clear the step. So he caught the toe on it, and I saw him going uh, just face I would have, first. I would rolled down. all the way down concrete. See, this is that. where you get that hands-on experience of an operator versus <laughs> theoretical knowledge of college that he could see all of the massive mathematics of kinetic energy and everything as Stephen was about to plow down, and he was able to stop him. So, so long story short, he walks me back to my hotel room. I get to my elevator, go to go upstairs, press a button, and realize, you know what, I'm going to go back out. 
turn around, go walk <laughs> back out of the hotel at like three o'clock in the morning mm. in downtown Denver, get about a hundred yards down, and finally realize that there is nobody out here. There's bums. Yeah, I'm gonna do something stupid. Bums I'm gonna walk back yeah. to the hotel. So I essentially woke up the next morning at uh, ten forty-five to my girlfriend calling me four times, saying, "Hey, isn't your checkout at 11? See my phone ten forty-five. I'm like, "Fuck!" I had a breakfast. I was supposed to be at at seven. He did not miss that. So then I called him. He was already at the conference. Stumbled over the conference with with the other guy we were with, and uh, ended up trying to. Uh, Shovel food into my mouth. To be fair, he had a high stress day before that. He was there. He was competing as our Arizona champion in a competition that day. So he had a high stress level. He did very, very well in the national competition. But yeah, high stress level to compete on that kind of a level in front of that kind of crowd had to eat at him. So yeah, Yeah. he was ready to go. He had to release. He he was ready to go by the time we got done. I sent it. Yeah. And I felt it the next morning. (laughs) <laughs> so yeah, no, that was that was my first experience. A couple more be- between then. Told you, Johnny, right himself, guy. Yeah, so now I uh, I no longer try to keep up. I would recommend it. Men That's have died smart. that yeah. way. Because you know, and and I will say this that uh, by no means do I, you know, much to my Hunter S. Thompson quote. I don't advocate for drinking heavily, but. I do do it very well, and I don't even I don't even enjoy the fact that it happens. Many people would would aspire to be able to do it. I I look at it as more of a crutch in the sense that boy, I wish I could get nicked up after just having a few beers. That would be awesome. Yeah, it because work that way. I, it like would us. be cheaper. I'd be healthier. But instead, no, I could sit and just pound them, and then I'm just sitting there going, oh, I do feel a little bit, but I have drained. The bar's entire supply of bourbon. Yeah, I think you guys are like three over me, and I'm already to the point where I'm not driving back tonight. So, <laughs> luckily, a girlfriend works real close, so I'm going to Uber to her place. You're literally in downtown Gilbert. We'll find smart trouble. Don't worry about it. Yeah, you're okay. We will party yeah. in downtown Gilbert then. Ain't nothing to do. Well, sweet. You want to wrap this up? Yeah, sure. No, let's wrap her up, man. This has been right. fun. Well, yeah. when when do you think you're going to have your podcast? I don't know. I mean, we, we're we're doing our golf tournament in February, and I'll be sending out the notifications on that. Actually, we finalized a lot of the. Uh, I, I did all the website development and all of the integration with getting the nonprofit set up and doing the uh, PayPal as well as the credit card processing. And I, I tried to be cheap because, much akin to my cheapness of constructability i spend more time doing things than i really should (laughs) but nonetheless it's coming out and so following likely in q1 next year um after that we're going to begin to hopefully do it on a monthly basis um but i also need to figure out the integration with if i can do this on a teleconference side where i have someone because my other um director shannon he lives in colorado so i need to figure that part out whether i need to have him on a microphone and if that actually functionally works in the same retrospect but likely march of next year well yeah, uh, get that up and going i'd love to be uh, yeah yeah on and your podcast I, I just, you know my history we'll actually have jesse in for the first uh, colonoscopy yeah. gut checked off <laughs> the live colonoscopy <laughs> yeah. we're gonna have on there yeah yeah no i have i have my own stories there that and then when he's uh, under the anesthesia we can all teabag him <laughs> Which I actually won't do, but other people would. Which I never understood how that's funny to put your balls on someone else's head. But yeah, what do I know? It's more actually. I'm only one American. Yeah. It's like my frat house days. All right. mm-hmm. Well, sweet. It's going to be called Gut Check, correct? Yes. All right. So <clears throat> listen out for Noah on Gut Check. Again, this is episode eight of the Desert Beach Podcast. Desert Beach Podcast. 
stumbling over my words here. Sweet. See you. Peace. Thank you.